The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Eye Dance. American 107 Heavy, cross from 31 right at Delta Bravo, give way to JetBlue, then right Bravo, march around Panangadai. Delta You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 127 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 11th of February, 2023, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, Captain Roger, Alex D, and I discuss the high stakes of an aviation profession. With the recent report that the NTSB has subpoenaed the three American Airlines flight crew members involved in last month's runway incursion at JFK, we asked the question, how does one protect their certificate in an event like this? We also discuss high-altitude spy balloons, Southwest Airlines lowering their minimum hour requirements for pilots, and the dedication of Benton House. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Joining us today is an exceptional aviator and Squawk Ident podcast co-host. He is a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, King Air instructor, Assault Falcon 900EZ and 2000 pilot, and a G650 commander. He's a captain, director of flight operations, and corporate operator as well. Joining us from the Courtyard Marriott in Santa Rosa, California. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing? I'm doing all right. It's come to my attention that I've actually made two consecutive shows in a row, so I'm feeling pretty good about myself yeah, today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, as I had a little break, I, I you know I had to ask when the last one was, it was a couple of weeks ago, but mm-hmm. uh, I think this might be the first time I've actually been on back-to-back shows. So yeah, well, we love having you and and getting your input and. You know, it's I'm just, always happy to give it. Yeah. <laughs> you got to keep us uh, grounded here, you know, not grounded in the uh, aviation literal term, but grounded in terms of our, our, our egos and our heads sometimes get the best of us. Uh, you know, before the show, we were talking about 
uh, a recent Substack that uh, Alex was reading, and I heard a little bit about this uh, on one of the other podcasts that I listened to. Proudly, uh, an APG listener myself, um, and. <laughs> If you work at fast food and you you set up a, a thousand dollars of a, an Airbus simulator in your home and you you get trained to be a sim instructor, but you don't have any pilot certificates, then no, that does not mean you're a pilot. <laughs> well, we're we gonna hope that doesn't get out too much. I mean, that's that's pretty much how I did most of my corporate jet type ratings is uh, self study self study Microsoft Flight Simulator. Oh, is that, and, is that uh, how you got your uh, your type? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, types, plural. Ty- types, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. Um, y- you know, I, I guess that we can go around. Alex has lots of, you know, things that he wants to be called now. Uh, maybe he can get into those. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, just, got just types call me a captain. Four, A380, A350. Like, Why stop there? Yeah. You know, if it's heavy, just write it down. Yeah. Um, oh my do a God. little bit of flight simulating instruction for yourself, self-study, self-talk. Well, I'm, I'm also and, a, uh, a Duolingo, uh, having a long Duolingo streak, so I'm now a UN interpreter. So like, oh, that's good. I mean, just keep the list coming now. Yeah. Now, do you get paid for Am all I'm, those jobs? No. See, no, that's no, all. No. That's, see, that's always the catch, you know? Yeah. If you can figure out a way to become a pilot and an Airbus 330 captain... Um, self-proclaimed and get paid for it, then I think we'll have maybe something something worthy of talking about. But it's, wow. <laughs> until until then, until you're actually a paid porn star, uh, Alex, <laughs> I don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> well, speaking of paid porn stars, <laughs> joining us today is another exceptional aviator and squawking in podcast co-host. He is a U.S. Navy Reserve's Chief Information Systems Technician, a chief. A certified flight instructor and an Embraer 175 pilot for Sandpiper Regional, the alias to one of Legacy Airlines' wholly owned regional airlines. Joining us after his captain and he completed a perfect four-day sequence from his podcast studio in Temecula, California. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Alex D. Alex, how you doing? Well, apparently, I need to start uh, adding some more accomplishments to to my uh, my thing there because uh, if we're if we're doing that, you know, claiming titles and all that stuff. Then, yeah, I definitely have a lot more going on for me than just that little bit of snippet there. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny because we we joke around about people that make themselves seem bigger or more qualified on paper, or you know, at a party they you know. We've always heard this. It's something about the technical professions out there. Um, technical people, uh, it's just weird. I, I remember this story that went around Sandpiper for years. Uh, one of Sandpiper's longtime pilots, I believe that he's still there. I don't think he did the flow through thing. He used to go around when he was young and he would, on his days off, just ride in the jump seat. He would list himself for a flight that he's never been on, and he would ride himself, uh, you know, in the jump seat and request the jump seat and go both ways back and forth, just wow. because he wanted the experience of flying in the cockpit of different airplanes that the company owned. So Ugh. every day off, he was out there flying somewhere just oh. to do a turn. And no. I remember the the story that went around famously was that he you know, was on an, uh, an American Airlines flight and the captain's like, oh, you're, uh, you're over at, uh, 
the sandpiper, huh? How how are you? Uh, so what do you want? And he goes, oh, uh, the seventy two, the seven the seven two. And he goes, <laughs> the ATR seventy really? two. Really, you you you. I didn't know the sandpiper flew seven twenty sevens. Oh, I'm on the seventy two. Yeah. And he goes, well, okay. So he didn't say anything. He thought that was weird, you know. And after the flight, that captain called the chief pilot over at Sandpiper, who he knew because he used to fly with him. And he goes, yeah, I just had one of your young uh, new hires in my jump seat. And he says he flies a 72 for, for Sandpiper. W- what's going on? You guys are getting 72s? What, what's going on with this guy? And he goes, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy. He goes, he's, I've, that's like the third call this month I forgot on him. He flies the ATR-72, as you mentioned, Alex, not the 727. Oh, my God. So it's just like a, a, a choice of words that can be used to kind of hey. boast about qualifications that you don't have. <laughs> I, don't I guess know. technically then I'm, I fly the, the 75. Yeah, there you go. The 175. So, do you get paid for that? Uh, well, yeah, actually, my, get, my, my as pays, a seven five captain, he gets paid pilot? better than seven five yeah, FOs. I was gonna say I'm, I'm getting paid about the, the, the hourly wage. Right, then, hey, whatever pilot. works. So, I mean, technically, I guess I could claim it. Oh my god! Can, so, can I can I ask a somewhat serious question? That's yeah, I, I have thought about this. Um, <laughs> this is this is kind of a little off the wall, but I kind of was reminded of it with what you were just talking about, about apparently this guy flying around gaining experience in different aircraft types. So I was thinking about this, but I think kind of in terms of, of our own captain, Rob soon to be captain Rob yes, and, uh, yes. and you and, and you, Tony, um, as you guys upgrade, you guys flew the Airbus, obviously he's upgrading into the Airbus. How does that work? Or how do you, I guess, feel, um, Obvious. I would assume that you guys are planning on upgrading aircraft types as your seniority allows into the heavy, the wide bodies, and the international. And without ever doing, and I know this is kind of an, an off-the-wall question, without ever doing an international, you know, other than Hawaii, we won't get into that part, but, you know, flying to Europe, flying to Asia, now you're in a different aircraft type, a new aircraft type, maybe a 7.6, maybe a 7.7, seven, you know, maybe, a, I don't know which you know, what, what yeah. legacy flies in terms of the wide body Airbuses, but doesn't really matter. And now you're flying to a foreign country for the first time in a new aircraft. Like, how does that, how does that work? Or what is your guys thought process with that? You know, while kind of taking two new things yeah. together. And like I say, it just with, with Rob upgrading, I never really thought about it. And then uh, it just kind of, yeah, made me wonder while you were talking about this guy jump seating around in various aircraft types. Yeah, now I, I I've always said, even when I was at Sandpiper, that the qualified upgrade that Sandpiper has is a short course in training. You don't have to go through a whole long term um, ground school uh, as you would at most other carriers uh, when you upgrade. The short course was really short. It was like, I don't know how many days of ground school, like four or five days of ground school and three simulator events and, and then your check ride. And you're talking you're quali- about Sandpiper? Yeah. What's a yeah, qualified it, upgrade? No. I want to say it's like um like three-ish days of ground, okay. give or take, because I mean you already know the systems, you already know that. So it's just a refresher. Right. And then you go to um DNR or Captain Charm School for three days. Um, you do a couple CPT lessons, um, do a PV, do your knowledge test, 
and then it's like four sims okay and and or five sims and two of those sims are your loe and your maneuvers validation right so i mean you're looking at like three weeks tops yeah so but when you are not qualified on the aircraft previously then you have to go through a really a long-term course which is what we had, to, we had two captain upgrades with right. us and they and they went through the whole long-term training with us mm. because they were 145 guys so they have to go through everything yeah but qualified now, upgrades should be right and i think i think that long term you're learning a new airplane but here's the thing when you're at a let's say you're at a regional you're just starting out in your your career like like alex has been doing he now he's been flying for some time but it's been in general aviation primarily and this is his first year at a regional carrier yep so now he's dealing with high altitude uh, flight operations he's dealing with all kinds of weather he's going from coast to coast tip to tip uh, in the country there's no really region that he flies in. he flies in all of it he has that yeah. he's learning he's getting that experience as he's going to progress and maybe get into the next aircraft uh or if he does a qualified upgrade because <laughs> that looks like at sandpiper that's all gonna they're gonna be flying is the 175 yep. now the 175 is not like an atr or a sob or you know uh a Cessna 410 or something that some maybe some commuter or charter or the smaller regionals used to fly where you're now learning different systems it, and you have to kind of progress into the larger aircraft, the more advanced systems, the more advanced turbine systems. He started out immediately into a jet airplane. Now, when he gets into the next airplane, wh whatever that may be, whether that, that potentially could be an Airbus or a 737, the systems don't differ that much. The view from the cockpit is not much different. You're still dealing with glass panels. You're still dealing with RBSM airspace. And so really, you're just learning the phraseology and the procedures. And as you progress in your career, <laughs> as you start getting into one, two, or three type ratings, which is the average, I think, in the U.S., then it just gets a little easier every single time. So by the time you're at a mainline carrier, 10, 15, 20 years into your career, when you go from FO in the right seat to say an Airbus to captain of an airplane you've never flown before, let's say a 737, the transition is not that difficult because you have experience flying multitude of airplanes. Now for my case, I've only flown two types of jets, the Embraer 145, and I was fortunate enough to just stay there on that aircraft. It gave me the most flexibility, the best quality of life, the easiest you know, commute possibilities. And then to transition onto an Airbus, the 320 family, um, again, it was a very seamless transition. It was a lot of the stuff is the same. It's kind of like I'm sure, Roger, you've experienced when you're flying the Dassault and then going to a Gulfstream, yeah, there are two different airplanes. There are procedures and checklist things that are different. But the flying, basically, you push forward, the houses get bigger, pull back, the houses get smaller. I mean, it's it's really very similar transition. Now, if you were to add a third type rating, you know, who knows? So in the third airplane type that you're going to get, maybe in the future, I think it'll just get easier with every single airplane because the similarities are there and I, and I also incorporate that into learning a language 
if you are bilingual, like say you know Spanish and English, one of the most popular two languages in California, right? And then you decide you're going to learn, I don't know, French. There are similarities in the languages. Sure, you have to learn a new language. It's hard. But you take upon those similarities and you can grow upon them. And it just gets, I think each language after that gets a little bit easier to understand, comprehend. So I, I think the crux of my question isn't so much the aircraft to aircraft. I'm not, I mean, I fly three different aircraft types now. Um, so one thing I do after after last time I do it, so it is Dassault, the Dassault Falcon. What did I say? Dassault? You, you like to sing Dassault. Dassault? Assault? Yeah. <laughs> Dassault. Um, anyway, Dassault. Um, who is it that, I'm just going to kind of make up some stuff here, because I'm actually gen- genuinely somewhat curious about this. The next airplane you you maybe upgrade to, I don't know, we'll just say it's a 7.6. Okay. Who is it that is flying in the right seat of the 7.6s and the 7.7s, the triple sevens right now, generally speaking from a seniority standpoint? Senior FOs that could hold captain pretty much anywhere they want. That's not 100% the case because there are some new sure. hires that are getting into the, that equipment. Okay, so let's take, let's take that. Okay, there okay. are some new hires because of well, because of you and Rob, which I totally respect and understand. Oh, that's not that's not what I'm getting at. Right, right. But now you upgrade to the seven six. We'll just say it's in L.A. And your seven six pairing, your first one is L.A. to Honolulu, Honolulu to Shanghai, and you are paired with a new hire, a new hire seven there six are- guy. So neither one of you guys has any international experience going over to Asia. Neither one of you has seven six that experience. How can you, happen? How, but it rarely how does happens. That how do you like? Do you think about that at there, all? There is language in our contract that's that states, or I should actually say, not in our contract. There's language in our flight operations manual that states that crew scheduling shall not pair a low time first officer with a low time captain. We're talking less than a hundred hours. Um, if that falls through the cracks and you end up paired with a low time fo it is the captain's responsibility to contact crew scheduling and say hey i'm a restricted captain i'm flying with a a low time probationary first officer and we're going into a complex situation like maybe an international flight now even on 320 i mean we fly into bogota we fly into like i went to Suriname. um we fly into lima those are latin terrain qualifications that you must have in, in order to go there is it possible to have a brand new captain that's latin called flying with a brand new fo that's also latin called and it just worked out that way yeah sure but crew scheduling is the are the ones that are ultimately responsible to ensure that that doesn't happen so there but, are some there are I protections guess. yeah yeah there are there is some consideration taken to the fact that this could right. happen and then to to not you know like i say i don't want to totally hijack it because i know this was nothing that we had planned to talk about no, but both you and you and rob were kind of talking about yeah. spending your entire you know up until this point at legacy airlines have, have flown just the airbus and i think that before or maybe back when i was at the regionals i was kind of oh you know you, you know you get hired into the initial aircraft type which the airbus or the 73 and then maybe you go to 75 and then you start kind of dabbling in mm-hmm. international over water yeah. and then you know the wide bodies and then you kind of backtrack and okay now i'm back in the airbus back in the left seat but at this point and as you work your way up from there you've had that 
you've dipped your toe into the water in the right seat from from the international over water, you know, North Atlantic crossings and um, a lot of the stuff that you do do to Hawaii. But then you start throwing in. It's kind of it's weird. Um, even in Europe, um, when you throw in the 833 megahertz spacing instead of the 25, it's just things are just weird and different. Having to remember a, an extra digit and stuff that all of a sudden, if I'm in the left seat, you know, which I have done, don't get me wrong, because, you know, I did this. Um, but now you're in the left seat. You're the captain of, you know, 250 maybe people in the back. And the guy next to you, maybe he's new because of, yeah. you know, just dynamics. And I just kind of thought about, because both you and Rob basically on the same track because of quality of life and we're going to stay in the Airbus upgrade into the Airbus 320 family. But I, I would assume that over the course of your career, you're going to want to get up into something bigger, but no, <laughs> without, know, you know, some of that, yeah. some of those stepping stones that I think I had thought about before, if I had taken that route. Yeah. Well, th- like there's another thing too, that we haven't really talked about is when you're dealing with the wide body international flying, you're dealing with a three man crew and a three man crew is going to be your captain, your FO Do number all one. of them have three man crews? If the, no, um, as a matter of fact, uh, there's, that's going to depend on the length of the flight, the length of the flight. Um, and if it's over, uh, like European ETOPS, a lot of times because the flying is potentially able to go over the eight hours and you're in a different theater, then yeah, if the flight's over eight hours, a different theater, sometimes over nine hours, um, then yeah, you're going to, it's going to have a three man crew, the three man crew that the second FO you know, they're, they're qualified in both seats, not to land, not to act as captain, but they're qualified in both seats and that's part of their training. And so they give a break and, and I could go to FOB or the second FO uh, at Legacy right now on a wide body out of Los Angeles, but I'd be, I'd barely be touching the controls of the aircraft and yeah, I might fly maybe three trips a month. So I do a lot less flying and every three months I'd have to go to the schoolhouse to get my landing currency in. Right. Um, but it's a good gig if you have other things going on and like you have another business or you have, you know, commitments that you need to be at home. It's not a bad gig, but you're constantly dealing with the disruption to the circadian rhythm. Like, you know, you're flying in a, into wherever, into England or into to Australia or wherever. And it's real. It's real stuff. I mean, you're, you're jet lagged. You know, you think, oh, yes. I got 30 hours in, in Sydney. This is awesome. N- no, you're going to be, you're going to be sleeping, sleeping and eating and sleeping and eating. And, and so Sydney, Sydney is not that bad. I will say Europe for me is way worse just because Sydney so is so far South. Right. And, and you're kind of almost, it's only, what is it? Maybe five hours or five it, hours off versus like 10. Yeah. When you go over to, I mean, that's just over into like Britain, I think is eight. Yeah. And that Europe is way worse for me from the jet lag standpoint, at least. Yeah. And well, I, I, we have these Airbus A321 XLR, the extra long range airplanes on order. I believe they're going to be out of Philadelphia and they'll be doing Europe. Now, it's not a type change for me. I'm already an internationally qualified pilot. I've done South America and Mexico and Hawaiian Islands and ETOPS and I've gone, you know, I've done a lot of that. I just haven't done the European theater and I've considered, 
you know, switching over and maybe upgrading over there. Cause I could potentially hold captain right now in Philadelphia. That's not a problem. I just don't want to commute. But if I'm doing international flying where I do only three trips a month on a two or three day cycle, yeah, it might be worth it to just have that experience so that who knows, you know? Um, so there's a lot of exciting things and that's, that's a part of this career is that it's very dynamic. You can move your cards around uniquely to you that works for you. Well, I think that that's different today than it was 10 years ago because things are changing so fast now. And you have, I mean, you do have that opportunity because I don't think you could have sniffed a wide body, a new hire wide body 10 years ago. Whereas now I think that all three of the legacy airlines, I I think that there are slots open for the wide bodies. And I mean, probably because of people like you and Rob, who, you know, you keep your quality. I'm based where I live. I have my quality of life and the aircraft that I'm familiar with. And I'll just sit right seat until I can hold captain in the base that I live. Cause I think that there's a lot of people like that, but like yeah. just 10 years ago, it wasn't just because the sheer amount of movement that, that there is now things are just different. I things move a whole lot faster for the people that are coming up now than, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So it seems to me, my dad, my dad and one of our close family friends, the, they're my, our close family friend, he's like four or five years younger than my dad. He was the base hopper, money hopper, trying to get the, the newest type rating, newest, all that. So he commuted uh, out of LA to go to, um, he worked for Acme Airlines um, before they were Acme Airlines. He was uh, the Northwest side of Acme Airlines. And he uh he would base hop from detroit san francisco salt lake um because he wanted to to get the newest and latest and greatest type rating or fly the biggest and best jet or whatever mm-hmm. and he commuted his like entire career whereas my dad loved his quality of life stayed in base stayed in la you know and you know he he stayed on the 73 because he didn't want that he didn't want to have his circadian rhythm thrown off he didn't want to you know commute to philadelphia just to you know go fly europe because well he could so yeah. and that's two like two two different dichotomies of people that are out there it really depends on what you want as your career do you want to be commuting do you want to be having that extra day back and forth on the end of it Um, I had the, one of our flight attendants on this last trip told me the best way to describe commuting to people who don't understand it. And for the listeners out there that don't know the, the perils and pains of commuting, imagine you getting off of your job, wherever you work and you're going to go drive home, but you sit and lock yourself in your office for five hours before you leave to head home. Right. That's That's commuting. Yeah. That's a hundred percent what can, and then you're is. bumming a ride from the first yeah. available uh, person that's going your way, and that might be two or three different people that go, "Yeah, I'll take you," and then they change their mind. And uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's, so commuting, it, I, I do it now, and like it, it, it's it's not the greatest. Like it, it kills my quality of life. You it's know? a completely different do- job when you don't commute. It really oh, is. Yeah. It, it, and, and that's and that's what I'm I'm looking forward to, you know, eventually when we were able to to live in Texas and live in base that like, you know, having two days off isn't really two days off. It's more like three and a half or four days, depending on when your flights are. Right. So 
Right. And if you're trying to commute uh, coast to coast, like I did for almost a year, <laughs> yeah, you could forget about a life. There's, there's no such thing. No, that's got to be miserable. It's, just to, it was terrible. Because you got to think like in Americans' world um, or in the other major airlines, there's really no nonstop flights anymore for going coast to coast. There are, but they're almost few and far between. And you're always hitting, full. <laughs> you yeah, don't want to sit in a jump seat. Like if, for, if you have an hour commute, like you're like you you're flying in and out of say Chicago or Charlotte and your your hometown is at a local airport that's got a 45 minute flight to get there. You could drive it, it might take you 3 hours or you could fly a commute and if the loads look good, you check the night before, the loads look good, you're obviously you're going to go with the the local airport and let somebody else do the driving, right? Yeah. Um but sometimes you don't those options dry up. And because of weather or because of loads, load factors, and recently the load factors have been the number one issue. So if you have to sit in the jump seat on the flight deck, it's not a big deal. Now, if you're desperate to get home on the go home part, you know, you'll do whatever you got to do. But if you have well, I a do it trans- for three hours, three, is it three hours? Well, three D- Dallas to Dallas, to Ontario. It's about three hours, about, give yeah. or take. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, and so and plus that doesn't count the time it takes you to get to the airport. You have to get there an hour prior to check in at, with the gate agent. Um, then you have to, you know, sit there and worry: Did the previous flight cancel? Is there weather in Dallas? Yep. Is it going to go on time? Is it going to have a mechanical? Am I going to actually make it to work? And then that's when we can get into the the all the minutia of commuter policies and protections. Well, we're, we're, I was going to say, we're going to talk about that when we talk about my update of what's yeah. going on. Well, let's, let's do that. Um, just catch everyone up on what we've been up to here in the last few weeks since the last show. Um, I did a lot of two and three day trips all month. Um, I bid a little bit differently. I think I mentioned it a few shows ago and I was doing that so that I can trade things around because it's easier to trade a two day trip for something else than it is to trade a four-day trip into a two-day. It's just not possible. Um, I did call in sick uh, at the end of January. Um, Legitimately, I didn't feel good. (laughs) I caught a little bit of a cough. No, it wasn't COVID. Yes, I tested. (laughs) But uh, it was weird. I came back from a trip and I started coughing and all this congestion in my lungs and I didn't have any kind of post-nasal drip or anything like that. It's just all in my lungs. And yeah, I caught something somewhere out there. Um, so I did the responsible thing and I said, you know what, I'll wait till the day prior. If I don't feel well, um, if the cough isn't gone or at least, you know, 90% better, I'm just going to call out sick. And that's what I did. Um, it's important for pilots, especially that if you're not feeling a hundred percent, if you're having some sinus blockage, if you're not sleeping well, if you have an upset stomach, if you have any kind of inkling of having a cold or the flu, a lot of us go, well, I don't want to call out sick and, you know, I just, it's not a big deal. I'll just, you know, wash my hands a lot and I'll just show up to work. But what you don't realize is no matter how well you take hygiene seriously, you're going to be spreading whatever you have. Where I'm on the flight deck, I don't know, the planes have about what, six, seven flights a day, at least at mainline, probably at the regional, it's more like eight or 10. Um, flights a day. That's a lot of hands that are <laughs> touching the controls. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and you know, I use my own head headset, and I do that not because I want to just bring my own headset and schlep that around. I use it because I'm cognizant of the fact that my mouth is in a mouthpiece, and I 
I just feel better if it's my own headset, not the not the shared one. Um, so I did the responsible thing. I called out, and I had a little bit of extra time at home, and but two day trips, a lot of reassignments, and this week. I actually, my four-day trip turned into a two-day trip because cruise scheduling removed me from the last two days because of something called IMAX. Now, every airline has its own contractual limitations on how much pilots can fly. I know some carriers, they have a limit. You can't fly over so many hours a month, period, and they can't take you over it, period, part of their contract. Um, Over at Legacy, there are pilots that are flying all the way up to the maximum that they play this this game of it's kind of like watching uh, a Wall Street investor like picking stocks and changing and uh, they're like on the floor and they're going yeah I'll trade this trip for this trip and that trip for this trip and and I'll maximize my flight time and I'll do this and then I'll I'll get this and this has a deadhead in it so I can fly more and I get this much credit and I can put myself on a premium and I'll pick up this premium trip for it. and it's it's exhausting. It's exhausting to watch. I know some people, it works for them. Like we said earlier, everyone has their quality of life. Everybody has their methods. Some people brag about, hey, I got paid 200 hours of pay credit last month. And you sit there going, how? Why? You know, and, they, and I've had it explained to me a few times. Um, it, and they just work the system. And Alex, before the show, we're, we're talking about, he had, was talking to someone about, Oh, I, I trip trade with this guy, which puts me illegal for them to give me a reserve assignment. And then I trade back to the same guy, give him back his trip uh, after a certain time frame. And it's like, what? what? Why go through all that work? Also, I don't have to fly and I get paid to stay home. It's like, seriously, <laughs> why did you get in this profession if you don't want to fly? And I understand it's all at the end of the day, it's all about money. But what happened to me was I reached this IMAX and I really wasn't quite understanding what that meant so i called the cruise scheduling department and i said hey um i was removed from this trip can you tell me what happened because the the removal code in my my sequence says miscellaneous and i don't understand what that means so she you know sat there at the keyboard tapping typing away and and uh, she said yes you've reached your imax limit for the month uh we had to remove you uh You'll, you know, and I said, well, am I still going to get paid? And she's like, well, I can't answer any questions on pay, but you can contact PayComp and they can answer any questions you have. So I thought, well, okay. So I, a couple days went by, the weekend passed, and I called our union's contract compliance committee. And I spoke to a lovely lady there who took the time to explain it to me. And I did a little digging from the union website. Now at Legacy, IMAX is calculated um, constantly, and it looks at an eight-month look back, a retrospective of actual pay projection or your credit hours. Now, and it also looks three months forward, okay? So it looks eight months back and three months forward. If your projected credit exceeds the thousand-hour limit that the FARs dictate for pilots then it'll limit how much flying you do for any given month so that you don't over go over your projection what was happening was pilots were loading up a lot of the flying at the beginning of the year and then by october november they're like oh you reached your your annual limit so guess what 
you get to stay home for the month of December. And as I mentioned earlier, these were pilots that were very good at playing this game. And so in an order to minimize that, they put in this IMAX limit. Um, so for me, I was limited to 82 hours. I got awarded a line that was less than 82 hours, but we went over block on a few flights. I got delayed for mechanical issues and whatnot. Um, and, and the overblock and overflying and it put me just over that. So they removed me from two days and yes, I got paid to stay home. Um, but it lowered my actual flight time for that IMAX projection. Now, <laughs> if that wasn't complicated enough, <laughs> then we also have all other kind of things in our, in our bidding sequences, like FAR limits and, and, uh, and other things, but we won't get into that today. So the, the whole point of this is I got to stay home an extra two days this month with pay simply because I've been flying too damn much. And Roger's like, let me talk to you about flying too damn much. <laughs> well, it's all relative. I mean, from a flight perspective, I don't fly as much as you guys do from a flight hour standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> now I spend a whole lot more time working at home and, you know, a lot of it has to do with credit hours per day. Yeah. You know, I, I think that we could all probably agree that we would count work as being a, a, away from home, a day away from home. And for each of your days that you work, you fly more than I do because typically we'll only do one leg. I mean, even on this trip that I'm now up to Santa Rosa, I flew up to Santa Rosa on day one. I fly back from Santa Rosa on day four. I looked into trying to get home, but there wasn't any way to do it, especially because we're leaving early tomorrow morning. And so I would have had to come up to, or come back up the night before anyway. Um, so that's just another day worked for all of two, maybe 2.2 flight hours for a four day sequence, but that's still four days that I've been gone away from home yeah. to only fly two hours. And you're not getting paid a per diem, are you? Well, we don't get paid per diem. Some, some companies, corporations, operations will work like that. Um, we're more on, I guess, kind of the quote unquote honor system, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we have to submit all the receipts for the trip and then, you know, I guess kind of, I, I'm one of the people that checks the red flags, um, which we really have not had an issue with. Yeah. Um, but like we have some are, general guidelines that the crews are supposed to use for hotels and then for meals and whatever, but we don't actually have a quote unquote per diem. So we can't pocket any money that we don't spend either. I see. So you're. Your company says, okay, uh, when you're away from home and you have to sit at some airport or some hotel for a few days, what are the kind of things that they allow, or I should say you allow? Is it uh, like rental car and meals and yep. hotel rooms? Pretty much. Um, any and all meals. Um, what if are, I get that get meal? Cars. What if I go to Disneyland to buy my meal? Is that, is that covered? If you go to Disney, well, I think you're probably going to need to get into Disneyland. Oh, yeah. I'm going to expense that, too. If you if you expensed <laughs> a ticket to Disneyland, you would be getting a phone call from oh, somebody. Okay. <laughs> I was just trying to circumnavigate this, you know, trying to see what the loopholes um, are here. <laughs> but really, we're, you know, we're not. It's like I say, it's an honor system. We only have eight people, um, eight pilots. So it's not, you know, keeping track of, you know, 12,000 pilots or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's pros and cons to it, like I said, um, because we can't actually, you know, we're not going to give somebody $60 a day and then, well, if I only spend 30, I can pocket an additional 30. We don't have that advantage right. either. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, if you want to go after a steak dinner, you can go out and have a steak dinner. Yeah. Um, probably not at Ruth's Chris, but, um, but those are just things that, again, more on the honor system. Yeah. Oh, when uh, it's a small corporation or small business like yours, the, the control, you know, one person can control uh, and, you know, verify everything is, is on the up and up. And anyone that tries to take advantage stands out. Correct. But when you and have, that's why it's, it's really a kind of a red flag thing is like, well, how come this guy's expenses for this trip number are so much different than this other guy's? And that's when it, that's when you start looking, OK, well, what? Because you have to submit your copies of receipts. Right. And it all has to match up. And OK, it looks like Aviator Tony took his family of three to Disneyland. Uh oh. <laughs> well, it was it was we talked about work. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think you used the wrong credit card for oh. this, or you know, so, or something like that. You know, we're going to not reimburse you for that, and that's how. Yeah, you know, that's how that I I guess would go. Yeah. I mean, there's only been a few times, and it's not been malicious. It's just, hey, you know what? This is like, let's not spend three hundred dollars for a, a, a one day car rental, which has happened before. Because oh. you know, let's let's weigh. You know, if you're going to spend that for a car rental, you're not going to get a car rental. Just Uber. If you're only going to be there yeah. Uber three times to get and you're, and you're, and you're going to spend less money. Yeah. Now the other, I will kind of something else that you brought up. That's a little bit different. Uh, I, I guess I did the irresponsible thing <laughs> using your words. I also got sick at the end of last month and I cannot call that sick because we do not have reserve pilots sitting around. Yeah. So if there's no one else left to fly, now I didn't, it wasn't in my, it was in my nose and I had a runny nose for actually you might still be able to tell now, but, um, I got sick after my, during my Aspen trip uh, It's fairly minor. Yeah. Um, but it looked for two weeks. I mean, I felt it just in my nose. And yeah. Unfortunately had to, I mean, there's nobody else to fly these trips. And so did you it, lock yourself in the cockpit? This season, when I don't know if you guys have noticed, when everybody's sick at yeah. some point, at some time or another, we would never have flights going if if a crew member actually called out sick all the time because we just don't have, yeah. couldn't do it. But I mean, so. but you're also you you all know each other, and if one gets sick, you know, and you got to do the flying because it's not like you're a major corporation with you know fifteen thousand right. pilots on the ready. It's it's just we don't have any we don't have right, backups. and it's not like you're flying the the general public. You're you know, you just kind of stay in the cockpit and sanitize as much as you can and wear your mask. Again, if you some have common to. sense about, yeah. you know, let's don't go to the if back. You're really sick. I mean, we'll, we'll figure some out and maybe that means the flight can't go, but, um, yeah, that's not happened yet. And, you know, we've had some people that have flown when they're fairly, fairly sick, but yeah, well, um, I mean, it, it, it's something you gotta, you only know yourself and you can only, only you can deem yourself fit to fly or fit for duty. Um, and if you are not fit to fly, no matter what operation you are flying, it do not fly. Yeah. Because I mean, that's a, that's a safety of flight aspect. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of what, what you've talked about and what I was talking about is more of our, our we're concerned about getting somebody else sick, not a safety of flight, but if you are not fit to fly under no circumstances, should anyone be flying? Right. I just want to add that caveat in there. 
Yeah. You know, the life you save could be your own if, uh, if you, you know, know your limits, but so you've been doing, you did the Aspen flying, you flew in a, is it Boston and, and Dallas love and were you affected yeah, I went at all? To Aspen and then I did a one day trip to Truckee and then I airlined home and had a day off and then I left and I went to Boston for three days. I think it was three days and came back and had a day nice. off. Did you get the chowder? And then I went to Dallas. No chowder. No chowder. Oh. What am I doing? I don't even remember. I mean, that's like two trips ago now. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I don't remember last week, let alone <laughs> two trips ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the DC, did you, where else did you go? Oh, now in your Dallas. Dallas and. Oh, I went, to, I went to Dallas and I saw the, the uh, flashy stuff in the sky. Flashy stuff. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. What's that called again? Flashy, uh, Chinese like, spy blue? Thunder. Thunder. No, <laughs> oh. lightning. That's it. Oh, That's yes, it. yes, yes. Yeah. I had to remember I'd read it somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was kind of interesting. We um, actually had to fly an approach close to minimums because the uh, it was about 600 feet overcast yeah. in light rain. And then we were there for about five hours. And later that night, the uh-huh. thunderstorms rolled in. And it just so happened that, you know, when the passengers showed up, it's pouring down rain and there is there's lightning, which is easy to see because it was it was night. It was about eight o'clock at that point. Yeah. And. We held off for a couple minutes and then kind of then ended up deciding, well, might as well fire up. We'll go down to the end of the runway so that when it lets up, we can launch instead of, you know, just save some time. Yeah. And even while we were taxing, the rain let up. We got an RNAV departure. We swipped, we kind of switched it mm-hmm. um, and got alternate. Basically, we, we got an RNAV to whatever the fix was. And we said, well, can we just fly straight out, which departure approved out of love um, to not fly into some of the weather and yeah unfortunately it was kind of just right over dallas and we just blasted out and within 10 minutes we were it was yeah. fine but um yeah, we don't dallas deal with that quite so much because we just fly a whole lot less you know we fly a whole lot less we don't just um fly i don't even know how many flights a day <laughs> major airlines yeah. fly but um it's a little bit different nothing that obviously we hadn't seen before but still a little bit different for us so. yeah yeah. And, and so because you are flying for private owners, do you think that when it comes to adverse weather, you're more conservative because, you know, you, you the owners know you, they know, you know, and you want to be able to continue to fly. And do you think you're more conservative because you don't want to put maybe the aircraft or the operation at risk? Or do you think it's the opposite. The owner wants to get there and you got to make it happen. And sometimes that will sway you to no, kind of go into weather. We are more conservative. And that, generally speaking, comes from the owners. We do not have any of the owners that need to, to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I mean, there are several examples of that. I don't know. There was it, maybe a couple of years ago, there was a, an accident, a crash in Truckee, which we go to mm-hmm. as a challenger. Uh, we go to Truckee all the time. Um, and we now have company minimums up there that are that are far above the FAA approach minimums. If I the see. weather is not three three miles and well, I don't even I need to look at it. Three miles and four thousand feet, mm-hmm. go to Reno. I see. And the owners are fine with that. Um, we actually had another flight. Um, Alex, or, uh, Alex is going to talk about his commuting issue. Um, we had a flight to Dallas it was a week and a half ago um, for a board meeting. 
for an owner. And we knew the day before we called him up, said, hey, just so you know, I mean, we've got freezing rain. You know, we can get in. It'll be fine. But getting out, all bets are off. And the morning of the flight, the crew had, it, this was not my flight, the crew had left for the airport and the owner called up and he can't, he canceled the trip because he was basically, he was hoping to get it done with his board meeting, which was at DFW, mm-hmm. go over to the airplane, jump in the airplane and fly to a, another, actually to Ontario um, or another board meeting that he was going to have. Except when you've got DFW in an ice storm, there is no, we're going to get out, get to the airplane, get in and go. Right. I mean, I, we had no idea what was going to, what the airplane is going to look like. Um, but I'm sure that that process was not going to be quick and he elected to just cancel the flight. Um, so generally all of our owners are very understanding. We tell them beforehand, Hey, this is the story. We just want you to be aware of it. We can do this safely, but here are the considerations. Should you choose to go? And then they are allowed to make that decision. Some things like the mountainous airports in Truckee, like I said, we have company minimums that if it's not, if it's, it's 3000 feet and four miles is actually what it is. Um, go to Reno. Like it's yeah. only a 45 minute drive from Reno back to their places in Truckee and it's not worth it. And the, and, and really that accident actually opened their eyes that this stuff is real. I mean, it doesn't really matter how experienced the pilots are for whatever reason, bad things can happen. and their lives are valuable. You know, yeah, yeah. they fly private jets. Their lives are pretty good. 45 minutes of my life is not worth it. Reno's okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I had no idea that a private owner would have company minimums. Um, that's very refreshing to hear because, you know, you hear about these kind of things happening, accidents and with uh, corporate jets. And sometimes, you know, it's, because well, of those, that was actually not pushing. dictated by the owners. I think because the owners were concerned enough about it, we, the, us, the operation, the managers of the operation, if you will, mm-hmm. the, um, instituted those and the owners were, are okay with it. We just flat out said, look, we're for safety purposes. We will not go to Truckee at night. Oh, um, or we won't, we were, we're not going to do it if the weather is less than the 3000 feet and four miles of visibility. Yeah. And they respected that because like I said, their, their lives are more valuable than it's not worth it. It's just not. Right. And that's, and it's good to hear. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. I didn't know that things would be that conservative. Now I'm not surprised when you're helping manage that operation, that you would have those kind of rules in place. And I'm sure that insurance reasons that those kind of rules help with insurance um uh what do you call those insurance insurance uh, premiums thank you yeah that would help with insurance premiums um so yeah it's good to hear now alex dealt with a little bit of texas ice storms i saw some photos on some of the facebook pages with the icicles from aircraft wings in dallas one morning uh were you affected by any of that i didn't get to see the ice firsthand I got stranded in California uh, going out on my trips. Uh, when I had my trip, it was the start of the month and the Texas ice storm went through. 
um, everything was set, planned to go. And I was went to go check into my flight. Everything was still good. I get up in the morning and I go check the loads to see where I'm at, would normally do. And my flight was canceled. I'm like, mm. okay, well, let me try going out of uh, on this flight, the later flight. And I'm like, oh shit, that one's canceled too. All right, cool. So I call crew scheduling. I'm like, hey, I know that you guys are dealing with a lot, but like both my flights canceled out of this airport. I need to be positive spaced. You know, I, I, I have my attempts, like I'm giving you my attempts, try to get me out. And they're like, yeah, sure. They gave me um, positive space out of San Diego. Nice. So I drive down to San Diego. I'm sitting atop the Laurel Street parking garage and I'm waiting and I get the the ding. Okay, well, this flight's now delayed to get out there. And I'm like, okay, if it delays any further, I'm going to be cutting it close for my sign-in time. And I'm calling crew scheduling and I waited on the phone for over an hour. And I'm like, Hey, this, this, what's going on? And they're like, okay, well, you're, you're good positive space. And like, don't worry about it. Like, just try to get out here. And, and as soon as I get off the phone with them, I start walking down uh, to go catch the van to the, the airport. And within 30 seconds of getting off the phone and walking down that flight canceled. Ugh. So I, I had no way to get out there and, or I, there was another flight that I tried for and it canceled. And then the, so they moved me to this flight and then that one canceled. And I'm like, I have no way to get out there. Like, I don't know what you guys need me to do or want me to do. And they're like, well, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to put you, try to get out here. Um, I had a lost day uh, in the middle of my sequence. So like I could catch up with my sequence again, if I was able to get to, to Dallas at a reasonable time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like I'll catch up with my sequence. Just, you know, I need positive space to get out there. Like I, 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 the loads are overloaded at this point. Like you're looking at flights with like negative 10 seats available. And I'm like, I, I, I have to be on those flights. Like I can't just run the risk of jump seating and have four jump seaters on a 320. So like, okay, we'll get you out of Ontario. We'll get you positive space. We'll do all this. And so the next day I go to try to get out to Dallas and by 11 o'clock in the morning, all flights out of Southern California were canceled to Dallas. And I don't just mean, oh, out of Ontario, LA, Burbank, John Wayne, San Diego, and Ontario, all canceled. There was no way to get out to Dallas. So Sandpiper has a wonderful thing called a commuter policy. They understand that people don't live in base. They understand people are going to try to get in and out as they can. And you have to show good faith, meaning you have to give yourself two attempts to get out to where you're going. And if you don't, it's not a penalty to you. If you have a missed assignment, you send your, you know, ticket stubs into the chief pilot and like, Hey, I tried, these are my two flights and they remove that from you. Now, the only thing that sucks is them removing it from me means that I lost 14, 15 hours of pay on the beginning of the month. So now I have to make up for it. I picked up a trip at the end of the month to, to make up for it, but like, did you pick it up under makeup or premium OT? So if it goes, if it goes critical or super critical, well, I'm going to be, uh, you so know. in your contract, if you, if you pick up a trip, an open time trip and go, well, I have four days off at the end of the month. And I, I, I just want to pick up a three day trip in there that I'm legal for, and you pick it up, it's straight time pay. But if they deem those days, premium or super critical after you pick them up, do you still get paid 
the premium yeah. was super critical? So it, it, uh, I had a buddy of mine who is really good at this. He's able to work his schedule and navigate it and do all this. Um, he lives in base, he's single, and he basically works to the minimum of eight days off. And he trades and does and drops and swaps and moves stuff around. And he is able to get like credited like 140, 150 hours a month. That's just amazing so, to me. And I know, right? And um, he uh, he was telling me, he's like, okay, you. he helped me walk through picking up that trip. And he goes, okay, now go check your, your month schedule and see what it's listed at is in there. And for me, it's listed as OT. So if that trip goes critical or super critical, even though I've picked it up already, I still get, I get the, the credit time for it. I think we need that in our contract. I don't know. I, I don't think, Sounds I don't like think that's there. To... In our, it's amazing to me that our wholly owned regional carriers pilot contract is better than ours. <laughs> Sounds like you guys oh, need to you know, negotiate your contract and do a good job of that. Oh, Alpa. wait, Alpa. Yeah, I'm just saying that's not that. I'm just like stirring the pot here a little bit. So okay, so, so you and and you were telling me that during your four day sequence, you got to talk to some podcasters on the radio while you're yeah. working. What happened there? So on the sequence that I just flew, that I the captain deemed a perfect sequence, and what he means is perfect sequences. We were off the blocks before or on time and in the blocks before time. So we were under time every single trip. Yeah. Which was awesome that, you know, that we were able to do that. Um, but same time, it sucks because it's like, now you're not getting the credit of flying for those long periods of time. You're just getting the credited hours for that trip rather than the other. So things. you, you Southwested it because uh, you guys get paid block or better. Southwest yeah. gets paid block. Period. Yeah. So if they, if the flight is blocked at two hours and they can get that flight done in an hour and 45 minutes, they're still getting paid two hours. But yeah. if that flight is blocked at two hours and it took them two hours and 30 minutes to complete that flight, they're still getting paid two hours. So that's why they do 250 till two miles out. That's why they're taxing at the speed of heat. Absolutely. You yeah. know, it's like, hey, uh, let Southwest taxi by. Okay. V1 rotate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we we were able to do that. And on that sequence, we flew basically we flew the same flight just in reverse and then had a, a Cedar Rapids turn at the end. So we flew Dallas, Little Rock, uh overnight Little Rock, Little Rock, DC, Jacksonville, overnight in Jacksonville, and then came back, Jacksonville, DC, Little Rock, overnight Little Rock. And then the last day was Little Rock, Dallas, Cedar Rapids turn to end it all. Um, but what we were flying. Uh, we were flying from Jax to DC and captain was flying and I'm sitting there on the radios and I'm like, okay, well, we're close enough. I can try to reach out and see, you know, uh, the wonderful Piedmont triad airport that opposing bases is a part of. And I was able to reach out and AG was working. So I was able to talk to him and give him a wonderful shout out for the amazing podcast that they produce. And, um, he recognized who I was. I left them a, a feed a review on their pot or their show. And he knew who I was by saying part of the review. And so it was kind of nice. Nice. Well, that's kind of cool. It's sometimes you're on the radios, you're flying out there, you're on the line and all of a sudden you hear a familiar voice. It's always kind of cool. And you, you don't want to like get on the ATC traffic uh, and say, 
hey, uh, you know, Billy Bob, is that you? You know, so you go, uh, Bob fingers <laughs> or something like yeah. that, you know, <laughs> and then you see if they go on one, two, three decimal, four, five, and but nine out of 10, they don't. But I thought I heard yeah. Rob a couple, a couple, uh, weeks back. Uh, I was monitoring guard in route and I, all I heard, where is he? And I thought, yeah. oh God, it's Rob. <laughs> <laughs> might might have been me. Oh, was it? it might have been. <laughs> it could have been me. <laughs> well, well, congratulations. That that sounds like you had a a pretty nice trip to to label something a perfect four day. I mean, when things go to plan to schedule and nothing, no wrenches are thrown. It's kind of nice. It's it's actually a pleasure. You get home, you know, you get back at home after this trip, and you thought that was a nice well, trip. If only they could all be that way. We we had a we had a perfect sequence. And then I had to catch a ride home and that was delayed like four hours. So, oh. you know, you, you win some, you lose some, but Hey, yeah, the sequence was good. The go home wasn't right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the subpoenas that were recently issued to some pilots over at American after an incident in JFK. We'll talk about how to protect yourself. The future of air travel. Is it in hot air balloons? We don't know, but it sounds like it might be. And uh, some breaking news about shooting down stuff. All that and more right after the break. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Well, we've been discussing some of the finer points of flying and a flying career <laughs> and dealing with the weather and commuting and, and all the realities of the admin side of flying as well. Well, recently, you know, we wanted to talk about these few articles uh, that we pinned for today's show. I mean, we, we've all been talking about this. You know, I've been listening to other aviation podcasts. We've been reflecting on what possibly could have led to the runway incursion and near miss at JFK. Now, I would never sit here and criticize the pilots on the 777 at American Airlines for what happened. And the reason, and this is, it, it's quite personal to me, the reason is I too had an incident at JFK many, many years ago that I was very embarrassed about, but I've never hit it. I've always been very open to talk about it. Now, at the time of the incident that I was involved with, I was on one of my last uh, few weeks as a first officer at Sandpiper. Um, I had my upgrade class. I was getting, I was already studying. It was going to be a qualified upgrade, as we were mentioning earlier in the, this episode. And I was very excited. And I was flying with, uh, dare I say, an old timer, uh, a gentleman who had been in the industry, who came from an aviation family, whose father was a United uh, DC-3 pilot back in the day. I mean, this lot of legacy that I'm flying with. And I've flown with this individual, this captain, many, many times uh, over at Sandpiper. A lot of respect for him. Real, real sharp guy. He was... Uh, 
He wore many hats. He was part of the accident investigation team for uh, the union that Sand Piper is uh, involved with. Uh, very, very smart guy. And it was always a pleasure to talk to him and to fly with him. And we were coming into JFK. It was a very, very rainy day. And there was a lot of construction going on. And I can remember it relatively vividly about it was my leg. We were, we were landing on four right. Okay, so we were doing an ILS, shooting an ILS in heavy rain on four right. Briefed it very, very appropriately with doing the landing distance computations because uh, the rain was heavy enough to where the braking action could have been deteriorated. And landing on four right, there was a lot of construction going on. And if anyone that has a runway diagram available, there were construction cones lit and unlit and a taxiway foxtrot, which was the normal high-speed takeoff, the first high-speed takeoff or high-speed taxiway um, to, to get off the runway, was closed. Furthermore, uh, taxiway foxtrot alpha was closed. So the second high-speed, normally they'd have you kind of make a, a left turn a little sharper into foxtrot alpha, and then you would hold short of foxtrot and cross and taxi to the gate that way. So we briefed all this. We were well aware of the situation. One of the uh, factors that were involved here, not only was the visibility relatively poor, the wipers were on high. I landed. It was a great landing. Um, I got on the brakes and I was slowing appropriately. And we were going to exit the runway at Foxtrot Bravo, which was the second to last high speed. So 8,004 foot 8,400 foot runway, we were going to taxi off the second to the last high speed. And so I didn't slam on the brakes, but I, you know, was braking accordingly, especially when you're dealing with a lot of rain, you try to use reversers more than brakes so that you can avoid hydroplaning. So what happened was the controller got on the radio and said, you know, Sandpiper, can you expedite off the runway? I've got a heavy behind you less than, less than two miles. So he immediately said, my aircraft, he took control of the airplane and he added power to the aircraft because I was slowing nicely, but we needed to go down towards the end of the runway to get off at the Foxtrot Bravo. And the instructions were uh, Foxtrot Bravo, Yankee, cross 3-1 right, Yankee Alpha, hold short of 4 left. Now, anyone that has a JFK chart out, you can kind of see that's not usually what we do. And I read it back and I read back Foxtrot Bravo, Yankee, Alpha, cross 3-1 right, hold short 4 left. And the controller stopped and corrected me. And she said, no, it's Yankee, Yankee, Alpha, hold short 4 left. And I said, okay, Yankee, Yankee, Alpha, hold short 4 left. Now I'm looking at my paper chart. It was a while ago, okay? And as I'm looking at my paper chart, he's looking at me. He goes, hey, do you see it, Yankee, Alpha? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I see it, I see it. And I look up, and granted, the visibility was relatively poor. It was heavy rain. And all of a sudden, on the right, I see... Two two right, hold bars, and I go wait. Uh, and he goes, yeah, yeah, it's cr- it's cross the first one, hold short of the second one. Red flag. And he started to cross at Foxtrot Bravo. Two two right, aka four left. And I went wait no. And by the time I said wait no, we broke the plane of the intersection, and we were halfway through that intersection when the controller said, Sandpiper. Uh, okay, Foxtrot Bravo, Bra- Delta Bravo, hold short 3-1 right. 
and she's yelling on the on the on the thing and i go oh crap and he goes holy shit i think i i think oh man i screwed you i screwed you and i'm i'm looking at him and i just I, i didn't know how to react it all happened so fast it wasn't like we were being complacent or anything it just happened so fast and i was like oh. of course we got the dreaded advisor ready to copy phone number so now it's it's eerily quiet all the way back to the gate and we got into the terminal we discussed what happened and he's like man i should have slowed down i should have slowed down i was like yeah i could have hit the brakes but i don't want to slam on the brakes when you're trying to you know taxi fast across the runway and and so we both kind of did an analysis on what happened to us. Now we immediately went into a quiet space. We found a, like a broom closet or something at JFK airport that we had access to. And we made the phone call and, you know, we apologized. We, we understood what happened and no runway incursion was or a runway incursion happened, but there was no loss of separation. And I thought, Oh crap, my, my career's over, you know, they're going to cancel my upgrade class. They're going to, this is going to be a strike against me. Um, I might lose my certificates. And immediately we both filed ASAP reports. Now, before I filed my ASAP report, I told them, Hey, I'm not going to submit this until I call my union rep and I have them review it because I'm not going to incriminate myself. If, if there's a way I can protect myself, I'm going to do it. And he was like, well, I don't think you need to do that. I said, well, I'm going to do it. So before you submit yours, I suggest you wait. So I called my union rep and uh, he said, good job. He, I, I emailed him my copy of the ASAP and um, he said, yeah, you worded that very, very well. Good job. You put in all the factors that were at play, you know, and you, didn't try to hide anything. It was good. Go ahead and submit it. So I did. My captain, on the other hand, he emailed him what he wrote, and he got a lecture from our, our union rep saying, you know, nobody needs to hear your philosophy and how sorry you are. They just need to know the facts. This is like, imagine you're talking to a lawyer. Give them the facts and only the facts and don't put colorful language in there or, or regret. You know, just put the facts. So he had adjusted his and he submitted it. And for two weeks, I sat there on pins and needles thinking my career's, you know, potentially, you know, going to take a huge speed bump. I was very, very lucky. Both of us were. Because even though we made the error, and even though there were so many factors involved that were beyond our control that led to the error, um, the ASAP committee got together the union, the company, and the FAA representatives all got together and said, well, considering everything that was going on, we're going to go ahead and just have you do an online training course. And I want you to submit the certification that you've completed the online training course, and we'll consider it done. And I was like, really? Cool. Um, So I did the course right away. And my union rep called me a couple days later. So captain I had flown with many times. And he's like, man, you got lucky. You got lucky because the FAA f- deems runway incursions as a hot topic item. And they, they are shooting for pulling certificates and making you go get check rides over again and get retyped and all that stuff. They always push for that because it's a hot topic for them. It happens way too much in their eyes. So when, uh, last month, when I read about the JFK incident, I took a little bit more notice 
I think, because of that, because of my past experience, because of my own um, error in judgment and the situation I was in. I mean, I wasn't behind the controls of the aircraft at the time, but I was there and jointly responsible for the safe operation of that flight. And I learned a lot. And taxing fast is not okay in my book. I've, since that day, it has modified the last 15 years of my flying. And if I am a first officer sitting in the right seat, I am not afraid to speak up and go, Captain, do you mind just slowing down just a little bit? Let me catch up. I'm in the yellow, which is a fantastic tool over at Legacy. We have the colors, the green, yellow, and red. All you got to do is say, I'm in the yellow or I'm in the red. And that captain is supposed to follow the threat and error management model and stop the aircraft or slow it all down. Because unless you're both in the green, it's a no-go. Now, this article from Simply Flying Magazine, which we'll briefly cover, um, it was an article that came out yesterday by Jonathan Henry and uh, Simple Flying, not Simply, but Simple Flying Magazine or simpleflying.com. The NTSB subpoenas American Airlines after near collision at JFK. Well, the pilots anyway. The National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, is requesting additional testimonies from crew members involved in a near-miss incident at New York's JFK International Airport earlier this year. The event occurred on January 13th, 2023 at around 8 44 local time. An American Airlines Boeing 777-200 bound for London Heathrow as flight 106 crossed runway 4 left without air traffic control clearance. The incursion caused Delta Airlines flight 1943, a Boeing 737-900ER, heading to Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic to uh, abort its takeoff on the same runway. Uh, at, by the time they stopped, they were about 1,000 feet from each other. The American Airlines flight was instructed to proceed to runway four left via taxiway kilo, and again, it goes on and gives all the instructions about um, the clearance they were given, what the controllers did, how they reacted. The Delta aircraft aborted around 100 knots, which is a high-speed abort. Um, They actually ended up stopping 500 feet short of taxiway Juliet. Uh, The closest the two aircraft came to each other at any point, was around 1,400 feet. The Boeing 777 uh, reported no injuries to the 12 crew and 137 people aboard. Um, And the 153 people aboard the Delta flight also did not have any kind of injuries. But they were both, you know, the Delta flight went back to the gate because at high speed aboard, you have to go back and get maintenance uh, to check out the airplane so that the the fuse plugs on the landing gear you know, they have to check that. Time has to go by. And there's a, there's a lot in a logbook that needs to be documented and reviewed. Um, the American flight ended up at the end of the runway. And they were advised to give in a phone number. And they sat there for, I think it was a, almost two hours. And then they took off. Because according to them and their union, they weren't aware of the severity of the incident. Um, so they ended up taking off, flying to London. Now, because they did that, the voice recorder only records on a loop for about two hours. So by the time they landed, any documentation of what was heard, what was said on the flight deck had been recorded over. So this has created an issue. And the NTSB is not happy with the fact that they were not able to pull the tapes 
Um, I think part of that, and that's my speculation, that maybe the, they're, they're insinuating that the flight crew intentionally took off so that any evidence would have been recorded over. Um, and the NTSB has suggested that the tapes be at least 25 to 26 hours long in the future. So we may have cockpit voice recorders with a much higher capacity. Uh, the article I'll put a post in the show notes there, a link to it. Um, but the important thing is that the audio from the American Airlines flight was unavailable to investigators because it only records the two hours. Uh, it was overwritten on the flight over the safety board stressed that transcripts for each flight crew members account of the activities and the conversation leading up to the runway incursion are particularly important and the absence of a cockpit voice recording and the organization confirmed that the frequently used recording devices in interviews um, they reuse those so that they can you know document uh, particularly those who had roles in operating the equipment involved in an accident or an incident which this was not an accident it was an incident so the crew for this American flight, they have been asked to be interviewed. And so far, they have not been able to interview any of them. On behalf of the crew, a representative from the Allied Pilots Association, which represents the crew, informed the NTSB that the crew would not consent to participate in audio recording interviews in any manner. The group concurred that interviews were vital to continuing aviation safety, but objected to the use of electronic recording devices. They were uh, quoted as saying, we joined the goal of creating an accurate recording of all interviews conducted in the course of an investigation. However, we firmly believe that introduction of electronic recording devices into witness interviews is more likely to hinder the investigation process than it is to improve it. Not only may the recording of interviews lead to less candid responses from those witnesses who may choose to proceed under such requirements, but the existence and potential availability of interview recordings upon conclusion of an investigations will tend to lead many otherwise unwilling crew members to elect not to participate in interviews at all. On February 10th, the NTSB confirmed it issued subpoenas to each of the three American Airlines flight crew members to compel them to appear for interviews at NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. The crew members have seven days to respond to these subpoenas. And that made my heart drop a little bit. Um, gentlemen, I, we've all been flying for quite some time. Um, have any of you ever been in a situation? where you thought, oh crap, there's going to be a hearing. <laughs> Me, not yet. Um, not yet. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it in the, in the negative sense of like, not yet, but like, we all know that there's going to be incidences that occur. And, you know, like what you had with yours, Tony, there's going to be stuff like that that happens. I had something happen in my flight training uh, days um, with my with uh i had i left uh one of the chains on when i taxied out on my airplane i got distracted during my pre-flight and i forgot to take one of the chains off and um tower called me and said hey you got a chain on your airplane one of the airplanes next to you sees it um so i got out and i took the chain off and there's no further incident or anything like that through what had happened on my end other than the flight school i was with grounded me for a week because that was my penance for getting distracted with my pre-flight so um, I, you know, I can't, I don't want to be the, the Monday morning quarterback on this. And, you know, there's a multitude of different things that happen 
in a cockpit at any given time. But the one thing that I do know with the triples is that all three flight crew members are present on the flight deck while you're doing the takeoffs and landings. I know that as that's true. It's just what that that's how American Airlines does what they do with the triples. I know that for us, that when we are um, doing stuff at Sandpiper, like it's not necessarily like, hey, keep your head up at all times while you're taxiing, because there's times where I'm head down, I'm, you know, punching numbers into the box or hitting frequencies or doing stuff. But when it comes to runway crossings, I am always up. I'm always looking. I'm making sure that we're crossing the right runway. The captain knows where we're at. Because I do not want this to happen, you know, especially operating in and out of Dallas. If you land on the west side, there is no other way to get to the terminal other than crossing a runway. And I don't want to, you know, have him roll across a runway and watch a shadow fly over us. Yeah. Every Czech airman that I've ever uh, flown with has always said the same thing, both in the simulator and out on the line. When crossing a runway, all checklists stop, all everything you're doing stops, and both pilots are heads out confirming who you is, where you at, and what you want. So they have yeah. to look and 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 I actually say on out loud. I'm I'm not trying to say that the captain doesn't know where we are. I'm just trying to I say it out loud so it's on the cockpit voice recorder. All right, we're cleared to cross, three six right, clear right. Captain yep. says clear left. And everything we're doing stops and we cross the runway. And as soon as we we're crossed the runway, then I go back to whatever I'm doing from doing a flow or a checklist or or something. And it's a pain in the butt sometimes because you're sometimes you cross one runway to take off on on a uh, crossing runway and you don't have much time and you're trying to get a before takeoff checklist completed. And all of a sudden now you got to stop what you're doing. And it's like, well. There's no one coming. You're clear left, clear right. Okay, let's go back to the checklist. No, you really no. should stop. And I'm I'm the same way as you, Tony. Like we come to a runway and we pause, like, all right, runway three five, three five left. All right, we're clear to the right, you know, cross. Mm-hmm. Something something to that effect, or you know, just because again, I'm like you, if something goes wrong, I want that on the voice recorder, you yeah. know, that like I did my due diligence that, you know, like. I'm not trying to abscond myself from anything, but like, you know, if it's on the voice recorder that I said, that, hey, we're crossing three, five left at Zulu, mm-hmm. at least it's on the voice recorder that I knew where we were at and where we're crossing. Yeah. So if it, you know, like my dad made the joke of like every, every landing that he did, like short final, you know, captain, if it were me, I'd go around. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <I remember> <laughs> But I mean, it's, it's in a way that's almost kind of true, right? You have to, to CYA and it is, it's bad to say that, but to CYA so that if anything happens, you're protected, you know? And I know that's what you're going to go into next with, well, how do you protect yourself against this? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, I think that this has turned into a legal battle more than aviation safety at this point. I think, I think, with an emphasis on the think, that the American Airlines crew screwed up. However, we are humans, and there is not a soul on the entire planet that has not made a mistake before. You know, I don't 
think again, emphasis on the think, because I don't know any of these crew members, that there was any malice involved with this. I don't think that our airspace system, that American airlines or airlines in general are going to be safer by taking these guys' certificates away. But if but that's kind of where I I assume that that's the reason that they are refusing to be interviewed is yeah. because they're worried about their certificates because people are going to want to go chase them down and crucify them for a mistake that they made that, yes, could have been bad. No, it was not bad. But in the end, we're human beings. Yeah. And like, it, and that's why I just think that this has turned into a whole legal battle instead of something about how to make it safer, because otherwise, why are they not? I, I have to strongly assume that the reason that they don't want to talk has nothing to do with safety. And it's just because they're worried about what the ramification of what's going to happen because of a mistake. They, again, that doesn't mean that they didn't screw up. Yeah. But are we, I mean, is it really, is that something that we're going to go after these guys' careers over because of a mistake that we made or a mistake that they made? Yeah. Well, and we all make, we all make them. Well, Roger, you know, to your point, we make mistakes, but the, the, what it's looking like with this is they made the mistake, but they sat long enough to know that their voice recording was going to get recorded over. Plus, and I think that, that they becomes, had a seven, that kind a seven of becomes the question. But was there malice behind that, or are they trying to protect protect their their certificates? Because that's really what this comes down to, yeah. at least for me, is you know, are they trying to cover it up because they were, you know, I'm just going to make a, a grotesque statement here because they were, you know, snorting cocaine. Or because somebody just messed up. Right. I mean, there's a big difference between those yeah. two. And I don't think that it's because they were doing something malicious, wrong, grotesquely bad on the flight deck. You know, I don't know a whole lot about it, this incident. You know, were they told to taxi via such and such a taxi for left via such and such a taxiway? Did yeah. anyone tell them? I never said it anywhere where it specifically said hold short of something else. Yeah, they and they messed up. Because I don't. I don't think there's any question that they messed up. It's yeah. just what what are we as a society or the FAA or the I guess really the FAA? Okay, what is the punishment for these guys going to be? And I because I think that that's where their concern comes from. And it's yeah. become a legal battle much more than it's become that they screwed up. How do we keep this from happening? Which is kind of what you guys were talking about because it happens too often, far too often. I mean, right, even yeah. if you just go back what three months, how many planes have hit each other at various airports? Yeah, I mean, we got some problems going on that I think have to be identified, but that's not what we're. I don't. I don't think that their refusal to be interviewed has to do. They're more worried about their certificates, not a. Yep, they're afraid to talk to the. Yeah, because yep. it, like we've mentioned here time and time again, liability is what is making the world go round. Right, um, and, and just I, like what well, Alex was saying, it's everything CYA. That's it. That's not about safety. That's about covering CYA. your own. Yeah. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with safety anymore. No, yeah. but that, that as, as a pilot, like it, it almost is a sad thing that you have to think CYA, yes. then safety, then passengers, I, which I agree with. And that's why I think that this is a sad thing about it going legal, because this is all again about the CYA aspect and not about the actual safety. How do we keep this from happening? Yeah. You know? No. Yeah. All right. Gentlemen, yeah. you got to pull chocks. Yeah. You you know, don't chocks. do that in Puerto Rico, man. They'll, they'll, they'll shoot you. <laughs> well, Good Alex, you, uh, you know, hey, it was great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Um, we'll catch up here in a couple of days and 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 get uh, talk about the the YouTube channel. Yeah, 
I will uh, I will send you the, the information that you asked about the picture so that cool. you can update them. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Have a yeah. good one. You guys as well. See you guys. Later. Max. And then there were two. Well, you know, we <laughs> Roger, thank you so much for for continuing to to join us here and talk about this. Um, yeah, I don't think that the I don't think that the pilots did anything out of malice. I mean, I, I at least have to assume that. We I can't, have, we want, I don't know. We have to, and we want to assume that they did not do anything on purpose. That the three guys up there are not going, hey, I got a great idea. How about we just see if we can cross this runway right. and see if anything bad happens? I just don't believe yeah. that is. So many other aviation podcasts have covered this in detail, have played the voice, the, the ATC recordings back and forth. I don't, I don't necessarily need to do that i understand what happened i can only assume we we actually on the last episode we were talking about hey this happened like a day after the change in our phraseology and standard operating procedures for multiple stages of flight could that have been potentially something that contributed uh the uh the apa or the allied pilots association which represents the american airlines pilots did come out and suggest that very uh, notion uh, a couple days after the podcast that we recorded, they were they were talking about, hey, we think that it's possibly that a lack of the uh, training from American Airlines on a change that was critical to multiple stages of from taxiing, pushing off the gate, and you know verbiage on takeoff and all that stuff. Possibly that had something to do with it. I think that's grasping at straws. Honestly, it didn't really matter because at the end of the day, the captain is in charge of command of the aircraft. The captain's responsibility is to ensure that the safe operation of the aircraft happens. Um, And I think that, honestly, from listening to the tapes, they were given taxi instructions. They were rushed. The, The third member of the cockpit was the one that was getting most of the criticism saying, hey, when you're, if even if you're just a jump seater, whether you're a first officer or a jump seater, um, the work in the flight or just catching a ride, aren't you responsible to see something, say something? So what were they doing? I mean, they have the wide angle view of the whole operation. So there's a lot of criticism that's been thrown out there. And I, I don't want to sit here and criticize any of them. It could have happened to any of us and it could have been a lot worse. Uh, I'm just very happy to hear that no one was hurt on either aircraft. It wasn't an incident. It was an error. Uh, multiple people uh, were at, to blame, including ATC. Because at JFK, they have a ground monitor. And the ground monitor is supposed to see. They clearly made a left turn to, to cross an active runway instead of making a right turn to cross the perpendicular runway. So what was the ground monitor doing? There's so many questions. And we're going to have to wait and, and see what the NTSB finally determines. Now, I can understand the NTSB side of this, too. Like, hey, all we want to do is interview you. Absolutely. Right? All we want to do is interview you. That's it. That's important information for them to have from a safety aspect. I agree. They can't make their determination of of where the error happened and how to fix it in the future, because that's really what the NTSB's role is, is to determine what, what caused an incident or accident and how can the regulations be adjusted. As we've said a million times on this podcast, every regulation has been written in blood in some way, shape, or form. So this scenario would have been a perfect example of how to do an analysis, find out what happened, and then correct it for future. Um, After reading this and getting ready for the show today, I 
just simply Googled, uh, which we're still using Google, but I guess pretty soon Microsoft AI is going to take over, but that's a whole other topic. Um, I Googled, um, what can you do? What can a pilot do to protect him or herself in the event that the FAA or NTSB have a, have a, a regulation that was broken? Right. And, and I came up with all kinds of blogs and stuff, but one particular article from AvWeb stood out. And this is a, an article from July 6th of 1997. It was updated on July 12th of 2019. This is not anything new, but the article is entitled Protecting Yourself Against FAA Enforcement Actions. I'll put a link in the show notes. If the FAA comes after you, they say, How you handle yourself during the early stages before you've had time to consult with an aviation attorney can spell the difference between keeping and losing your certificate or your job. In this article, a practicing aviation attorney who once was an FAA lawyer himself offers three valuable tips that could save your ticket. Now, it it gets into quite a bit of detail, but I'll just read you the tips. Tip number one, recognize when you are a suspect of an FAA enforcement action. So what does that mean? How are you a suspect? Okay, let's say you're even in GA and you're out flying in the pattern and the tower gives you a phone number to call. Guess what? That's one of the enforce, potential enforcement actions. If you are sent a letter of investigation, usually through certified mail, that's another one. Um, or if a person approaches a pilot or mechanic in the vicinity of a hangar or ramp and asks numerous inquiries about a previous flight and you don't know who they are, <laughs> yeah, these are all things that you want to be very weary about. Um, so that is tip number one. Recognize when you're a suspect of a potential FAA enforcement action. And unfortunately, it, it can get kind of convoluted in, in the different scenarios that could play out. Um, now, there are certain things that you may be required to do without delay upon presentation of the proper identification from anyone from the FAA or NTSB or even law enforcement official. Uh, if they ask for your FAA certificate, you got to show it. Okay. You can't just go, well, I don't know. You can. If they show you their credentials, there's certain things that you must do. FAA certificate, current medical certificate, airworthiness certificate of the aircraft, logbooks, uh, maybe even your own flight logbook. Allow the FAA to inspect your aircraft. No questions. Permit the FAA uh, an inspection of aviation records. If if you're running a commercial aviation business, like say like what Roger's doing. So if any of these things happen, these are just, it's a no-brainer. Don't ever obstruct things like a subpoena, search warrant, uh, and do not exceed the scope of authority contained in the subpoena or search warrant also. So there's, there's a lot of things to identify if you're being in the middle of an enforcement action. Tip number two, don't attend an FAA informal conference without a lawyer. Um, now, you're, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm renting a Cessna 172 getting my private pilot license. I can't afford a lawyer. Well, who has a lawyer? Well, I'm here to tell you that when I got my student pilot certificate, my instructor, Luca DeFort, Luca, if you're out there listening in, in Italy, <laughs> hi, ciao. Um, he told me, join AOPA. He says, pay, pay the, I think it was like $19 a year at the time. It was nothing. 
He goes, join them. Because if you ever bend an airplane or, you know, pop a nose gear or something and you need a lawyer for any reason, you can pay if you want to have the lawyer services on retainer. But if you need one, they're a great resource to have for pilots. Once you get on to the airlines, you'll join a union and the union has lawyers. But a word of caution, a union lawyer is not your lawyer. Okay. A union lawyer will protect you for things that may have happened at work, uh, anything where the FAA says, hey, you need representation. They won't always protect you, though, because if there's something against you that is not under the scope of the union, sometimes you might need your own lawyer. I still have my AOPA membership because of that very reason. And not only is it a great resource for GA, keeps me in the loop uh, with the general aviation community, but in case I ever needed something, I go rent a 172 for the weekend and something happens. My union lawyer is not going to protect me, but the AOPA resources are there. The Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Uh, it's a great organization. I'll try to put a link in the show notes. If you haven't heard about it, great way to start. So always have a lawyer with you if you're asked to attend an FA informal conference. Oh, this is just a, we just want to talk. We just want to talk. Can we have a phone call? Can we just talk? Um, be careful. And the third tip is submit a NASA ASRS report immediately after any incident or mistake, or what we call the ASAP, right, for the airline folks. So when in doubt, just ASAP it. Um, these three tips will help protect you and your license. Now, once it goes to court, again, you're going to, if it, if it gets that far, you always want a lawyer on your side uh, because every word you make, every word you, you state um, can and will be used against you. Um, and the funny thing is, at least out on the flight line of a major airline, we often hear as part of the pre-flight briefing, always work from the hearing backwards. In other words, we're going to do everything we can to stay out of the chief pilot's office, to stay off the carpet, basically, in their office, right? Um, and always work from the hearing backwards. So if the decision we're making now is going to lead to a hearing <laughs> later, it's not a good decision. Let's, let's err on the side of caution. Let's be conservative about this. Um, hey, there's a ding in the left wing, Captain. Yeah, but it's old and it's been there forever. But it's not in the logbook, Captain. Um, oh. Okay, somebody told me it's about, I don't, it's a go-home leg. I don't want to take a delay. What do you think, Tony? Should we go? I want to go, but somebody knows about this. Ding, it's not in the paperwork. We're just going to have to take the delay. And it's just, a lot of times a shame because it's not a safety to flight issue. It's just like a, you got a door ding in the parking lot, right? You're not going to take your car to the mechanic for every door ding you get in the parking lot. Okay, that, that's ridiculous. But in aviation, that's there for a reason. It has to be documented so that if anything were to ever happen, it's been documented and the lawyers would be happy about that. <laughs> I never thought I'd be a lawyer. Never, never in a million years thought I wanted to be a litigator. But here I am now, 20 years flying. And I, I realized that thinking like a lawyer is going to protect me and my crew and my passengers. So how do you protect yourself? Think like a counselor. <laughs> now, Roger, 
Have you have you given thought to these kind of aspects of how to protect your certificate in your operation? Sure. I mean, and, and like you mentioned before, um, I'm an AOPA member, um, whatever the professional level or subscription is for medical and legal support. <laughs> Hopefully we'll never use it or never need it. Um, but unfortunately, the reality of the situation is that we're humans. And we all make mistakes, and I am not an exception to that rule. Um, and and so I think, and, and that's about it as far as it goes for me. We don't have the ASAP. You mentioned the NASA. Mm-hmm. I think it's the ASR or something reports. Um, I've not had to file one. I did file ASAP reports when I was at the regional airlines uh, at ExpressJet. Um, things happen. Yeah. Now, if you're filing an ASAP every every few months, then maybe there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> because why are you putting yourself in this situation uh, that you have to fill in ASAP uh, that often? You know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, <clears throat> things happen so fast. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, you know, you do the same thing day after day or you go to this, your, your hub airport and then all of a sudden you were okay. And all of a sudden you're crossing a runway and I, it's, I, how did that happen? And unfortunately that's, it's kind of true. Yeah. Um, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself and, and looking back on it, you can go, okay, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. But at the time, things seem to just sneak up on you. Yeah. So. And always be prepared. Now, in the ASAP, a lot of people might that are listening to the podcast, you know, all, all seven of you that are listening today, um, they might go, well, I've heard this ASAP. Everyone talks about this ASAP. What is it? Our Aviation Action Safety Program. Okay, and that's the ASAP program. And the purpose of the ASAP uh, is that each member of the ASAP program, so if you're part of the airline, you're automatically in. The reason that it's there is not only to point out when you screw up. All right, so we're we're told to level off at flight level 270. As passing through 18,000, this is an example of an ASAP that I've I've heard of. Uh, Upon crossing 18,000, we got an air traffic uh, uh, radio call. Uh, They told us to... uh, maintain a certain speed and go direct to a fix both pilots were involved in plugging that into the flight management computer and we uh, got into talking about what this route meant for the weather and we neglected to set the altimeters to standard which is 2992 inches of mercury right so the aircraft levels off and subsequently we got an atc call saying uh, say altitude we were off by 400 feet because the incorrect altimeter setting so we said oh correcting set the altimeters to standard the autopilot adjusts and now levels off that is a perfect example of when you should file an asap it was an error it happens now what are the contributing factors to those errors we were during a critical phase of flight which is passing through eighteen thousand feet which is when you're supposed to go to standard pressure um on the on the altimeter setting uh it was on the colesman window and uh, you got interrupted. Okay, now you let that interruption get the best of you. Both pilots did. Okay, because they didn't go well. Okay, you can you can miss a radio call. That that's not gonna you know you got you got time. All right, uh, transition uh, standard uh, standard. Okay, now I'll read back the transmission. Aviate first, navigate, and then communicates last. So let's just say that wasn't possible. Right. All right. Hey, well, hold on a second, Captain. Um, let's do transition standard. Now, in the Airbus, we're spoiled. The minute we pass through 18,000, guess what happens? 
our altimeters start flashing at us going, hey, are you sure? And it's intelligent enough that when we're in South America and the transition altitude is nothing like 18,000, maybe it's down to 9,000, maybe it's 10,000, maybe it's, who knows, sometimes it's even lower. Sometimes it's like 4,000 feet transition altitude. The aircraft knows where you are. And on the Airbus, as soon as you cross that transition altitude, guess what starts blinking? Your altimeter setting. So it starts blinking at you going, hey, you just crossed through transition altitude. So it's very intuitive. There's no reason to miss something like that. But like Roger said, we are human. We all make mistakes. Alex said the same earlier. Um, so that's a perfect example of when you would file an ASAP. Now, does that protect you 100% of the time? No, it does not. Sometimes, you know, both pilots are involved in something that they shouldn't have been involved in. And maybe it wasn't out of malice, but it was intentional. It's not going to protect you. It's not to get out of jail free card. 90% of the time it is, but it's not. Now the ASAP program, I had a, a director of the union's ASAP committee tell me that the ASAP program is not only when you make a mistake, anything safety related, even a good job pat on the back can go through the ASAP committee and it'll be documented. Like you go to a, a particular airport and they do something in a certain manner that is very safe and you think, wow. This is, this is a great idea, the way they're doing it here. I wish that all the stations did it this way. You could file an ASAP report. Because when you fill it out, at least for us, there's a column that says, are you recognizing a safety issue? You know, are you giving an attaboy, basically? So ASAPs are not just for when you mess up. ASAPs can also be to recognize a good thing, a good safety protocol. So when in doubt, just ASAP it. That's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. Yeah, for them. Yeah. Unfortunately, no. I mean, when you start yeah. getting subpoenas involved, I mean, yeah, it's that, that's real. It really now, is. I, but like you said, I you know I understand. I, I completely understand the NTSB's point of view. I mean, in order for them to find out what happened, they need to hear from half, you know, a third, I guess, Delta kind of being a, a part of it. But you know, yeah. what happened, and and they can't get that information. But I understand the pilots. But, yeah, I mean, to get to the point where you're getting subpoenas, then that's you know you go down a slippery real. slope. You really do. Um, and then you, yeah, you want to, like you said, you want to protect yourself, but at some point you got to cooperate. You know, it's kind of a give and take. You gotta, you gotta. And hopefully, give a they're only doing, you know, refusing this at at the request insistence of attorneys. But surely the attorneys must know what's going to come next, and in the end, they're going to yeah. have to go on record. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And, 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 but now it's just going to happen under under subpoena, which does not look great for them. No, because it the just N doesn't. <laughs> the NTSB is going to want to save face and say, well, this is, you know, oh, well, now that we've gotten to the, you know, the minute you get the lawyers involved now, it's like, OK, now there but, is. You no know, I think with the way. NTSB, they don't have any regulatory. I mean, the, the NTSB is not going to do anything. It's the FAA that's going to come in after the NTSB. Right. You know, after what the NTSB finds out, good. I, but I don't think the NTSB is out to get anybody. They just want the information because they're not, right. they, they just gather the information. They don't take any action on it. Right. It's the information that they, they, that they in are the written to. report that the FAA is going to use against the pilots. Right. So that's, that's where the connection is, you know, but, you know, it, it, maybe, maybe in the future, we don't have to worry about runways and incursions and stuff because maybe the future of air travel is something a little bit more majestic, like high altitude spy balloons. 
vertical takeoff and landing. That's it. Just go with the wherever the jet stream takes you. Now, not really. Now, we, we all heard about these, uh, seen thousands of memes flood the interwebs lately about the Chinese spy balloon takedown over the east coast of the United States. The interesting part of this event was that a new record was made. At least in the U.S., this event was the highest elevation air-to-air takedown of a lighter-than-air vessel. The AviationWeek.com did a, a nice article about this. I'll, again, I'll put a link in the show notes. This was from Steve Trimble and Guy Norris on February 9th. And they talked about this spy balloon. The balloon shot down reveals new insights on U.S. and Chinese capabilities. Now, I'm not really going to talk about the politics of all this and what this means and how this has been going on for years and years and years. But... Uh, we will talk about the interesting aviation aspect of this, that the high altitude spying balloon that was in the news around, it's been around for a long time. And in this particular uh, um, writer's experience, uh, he was a, a weather person and exclusively the director of Taiwan's weather service uh, wrote on Facebook on February 4th uh, that before that, There are photo records elsewhere, too, for many years that uh, high-altitude spying balloons have been around for a long time. This particular incident was a bizarre five-day, 2,000-mile journey across the United States of China's apparent spy balloon, and it revealed three important new insights. That the Raytheon AIM-9X Sidewinder-armed F-22 can shoot down a floating object above 60,000 feet. U.S. officials believe that Beijing has waged a years-long aerial spying campaign with high-altitude balloons around the world. Some experts think that the Chinese vessel reveals a potential breakthrough of ultra-long endurance lighter-than-air technology. The Lockheed Martin Stealth Fighter's capability uh, to down a high-altitude balloon has never been tested or possibly even conceived. But the brazen violation of the U.S. airspace promoted President Joe Biden on February 1st to order the shootdown attempt, the White House officials say. Some criticize the decision to allow balloons to cross the U.S. landmass, but military officials insisted that the balloon surveillance capabilities posed no threat to national security. Yeah, right. Military analysis also gained ample time to study the alleged spycraft's behavior and emissions, while the fighter pilot community ran simulations to determine the best way to attack the unfamiliar target. So, yeah, we have uh, missiles shooting down a very small, lighter-than-air craft at above 60,000 feet. This air balloon was only 200 feet tall. That's a small target. Now, granted, it's not moving very fast. So, I mean, you could probably even hit it with guns. <laughs> but I got, I got a slingshot. <laughs> Part of this is fascinating. Part of this is stupid. And like you, I'm not going to get into the politics of all this. But we have the first confirmed F-22 air-to-air kill a balloon. We've shot down a balloon, something that we could have used 3,000 years ago, a bow and arrow. Could have taken this thing out of the air. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a kind of a fascinating aspect that you were just talking about. Obviously not at, at 68 or 60,000 feet. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that is up there. I that mean, is... the fact we can get somebody, we can get a balloon to 60,000 feet. Yeah. And then we have a, a missile that can do it. But at the same time, literally a bow and arrow could have done it. And couldn't get, like, what happens to just a little, you know, 
do, do we really need a, an F-22 to get up there? Fox 2! Well, who, who else can get that high? And, and that's where the fascinating you know? aspect comes up. I think because of the altitude made some, some other issues. But, I mean, I don't think that this was... I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Things just a, a, a little it's funny weird. and a little impressive. It's, it's, there's a lot of emotions that go into this, I guess, yeah. besides the political aspect of it. But I mean, couldn't, did, did we really need to use a, a missile for this? And, and not only that. Did F-22 go up that high? Where was the F-22? How we many, know. How many did it fire people- up? How many people watched this and videotaped it? It was all over the place. I mean, there was um, uh, people, you know, drinking Budweiser in their backyard barbecue and watching this. Oh, they're going to shoot it down. They're going to shoot it down. Oh, look at that. Oh, that. So how small could this thing have been? If I'm sitting on my back porch in South Carolina looking it up, go, oh, my, it's, it's the Chinese. <laughs> And it's 60,000 feet above the ground. I mean, the thing can't be that small. Okay, here's the homework, everyone. Okay, go and watch the original Red Dawn. All right, 1984, I think that movie came out. And then then go watch the remake of Red Dawn, which was, that one was terrible. It's like 1997. So on the first Red Dawn, Patrick Swayze, I mean, all-star cast, right? Uh, that was the Russians were, you know, invading America. And they were parach- parachuting down into small communities. And the high school kids, you know, got their guns and, and they defended our country, right? Okay. It was a great movie at the time. I loved that film. I loved the all-star cast. It was the girl from... It was the girl from uh, that other Patrick Swayze movie. Um, what's it called? Dirty nobody, Dancing. Dirty Dancing. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, nobody puts uh, Baby in the Corner. Anyways, baby so, in the Corner. Yeah. So ba- Jennifer Grey. Jennifer Grey. And she's in this film too, in, in the original. Um, it was a great film. I, I enjoyed watching it. It was in the era of Rambo and Commando and the Stallone, Schwarzenegger, you know, movies that came out all about, you know, the Vietnam vets coming back with PTSD. Um, so it was a great film. Now, I have not seen the remake. Alex was telling us about it before the show here. Um, Alex was not a fan. He was not a fan. Uh, <laughs> but he, you know, in that one, in the remake, it was the Chinese that came. I mean, I, I'm surprised no one's put the two and two together yet, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting concept. Now, I don't think. We're not the only country that this this types of balloons have been flying over. Um, so clearly, there is something going on politically um, now. As we're recording this, just yesterday, breaking news: the Pentagon says it has shot down another unidentified object over the frozen waters of Alaska on Friday, at the order of President Joe Biden. Now, they're not calling this a spy balloon. There are no video or photos of any of this. It was just an object. They're calling it an object. Now, (sighs) the president got a lot of criticism about not acting. Why would you let this thing, you know, go 2,000 miles over areas of the country where there are known military installations, missile silos, and why would you wait until, oh, because there's a danger to people on the ground? No, I think they were gathering intelligence on it and... They were like, well, now we want it. So <laughs> they shot it down over the coast of North Carolina. Understandable. For only a few days to go by, and now another F-22 has shot down an object, this time at 40,000 feet. Now, th- they're saying that it was shot down because at 40,000 feet, it would have been a danger to passenger aircraft. That, you know, because it was a lighter than air object. Now, this one was not the size of three school buses like the last one. This one was the size of a small car. So, 
my guess is that it's going to be a weather balloon <laughs> that broke from its mooring because it's pretty small. It didn't have, according to the White House press secretary, it didn't have the transmission uh, technology on it that the Chinese balloon did. Um, it probably wasn't a drone because at 40,000 feet, that's pretty high. Um, I don't know about how sustainable a drone is because propellers, right? At 40,000 feet. But um, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be relatively nothing when it comes out. But all of this politically is going to be interesting to see how we all react to this and how some of the other governments around the world react to this. These, these spy because balloons. Because we don't, or the other governments don't have, I mean, what about satellites? we got satellites spinning exactly. above. They can do the same stuff and they do this on a daily basis. This is, and it's not just them. Like the United States government doesn't have the, whatever it is that they have flying we use over satellites. Russia, China. Right. We use billion dollars. What's a satellite or a balloon? <laughs> Who cares? We're yeah. all doomed. Uh, they, they're using balloons. We're using million dollar satellites in low earth orbit. And a million orbit. dollar <laughs> missile to shoot it down. Exactly. <laughs> but damn it, it can shoot at 60,000 feet. But so hey, that's cool. pretty cool, though. That is, is pretty cool. And can you it imagine is. that pilot? A million dollars. I'm an ace. How many balloons did you shoot down? <laughs> I took out the Chinese balloon. <laughs> oh, it was God. this really small, fast-moving target I took out. But if I you stop and think there, about yeah. it, you know, the military applications here, if you stop and think about it, because you know, a lot of people, I haven't really been watching all the, the commentary on, on the 5M about this. But if you think, Okay, if if any schmuck can grab a a hydrogen balloon or whatever that balloon was and attach three school buses to the uh, something the size of three school buses to the bottom of it that is spying and taking information and intel and high res photos. What's stopping someone from strapping a nuke on that thing and then when it gets over your particular target dropping it? Right? I mean the the, the military implications here could be astronomical and we're talking about oh well you know the f-22 shot down a balloon we're making fun of that but on a serious side it, it could be pretty it could be a big deal um and yes the technology like if you if you have the technology to do that you would think you could do it from outer space or you know who knows so i think uh i think the guard is up now our guards up any any balloon that gets released now has a just, just so you know, if you're a balloonist, uh, you you could be shot down. It, it, it could happen, you know. If you don't have clearance, you better have a transponder and a radio because you could be shot down. You know, the balloon fiesta, holy crap! I'm put a net over that shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wanted to to share some good news. Um, if for those of you that are that are hunking for a career at Southwest. Um, like I know some of us are, <laughs> Layup now announced just, uh, I think it was, uh, a few days ago that starting of February 7th, aspiring Southwest pilots will need at least 500 hours on jets or turboprop aircraft down from the 1000 the airline currently requires Dallas based budget airline, uh, communicated the change in an internal memo addressed to the pilots and later explained that the rationale behind this decision is a willingness to increase opportunities for an airline pilot career to make more skilled pilots. 
In 2022 alone, Southwest hired a total of 1,000 pilots, and it plans to take on an additional 1,700 pilots in the year 2023. I'll put a link in the show notes. This article is from Giacomo Amati from Simple Flying Magazine. Simple Flying Magazine. Um, And so, hey, if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to put my resume out there, I'm flight instructing, and I'm going to get a job at a regional, and... You know, within a this couple is years, I go to Southwest. Crazy to me. Can I you just, imagine? Like, I wanted, like, I think back to my the, to my the beginning of my career, the beginning of my commercial career, and I wanted nothing more than to be a Southwest Airlines pilot. And it, it it actually dictated some of the decisions that I made. You know, you went to Sandpiper. Mm-hmm. I went to this outfit called Key Lime Air, which still exists, by the way. Yeah. And the whole reason I did that was because I wanted to get my thousand hours of PIC turbine time, which at the time uh, I thought, you know, if those were the minimums, you know, that was, <laughs> if I just made it to the minimums, that's like, then I'd be, um, I'd be competitive, uh, which is not the case, by the way, <laughs> which is not the case. Yes. Yes. Uh, which is probably why I'm not a Southwest Airlines pilot or a United Airlines pilot or a Delta Airlines, any, any number. Yeah. Um, and now all of a sudden, I don't know, what are the, what are the minimums? You need 500 hours of turbine time or turboprop. So just turbine turbine, yeah. not PIC. No. How the world has changed. Don't, that's don't really, any, that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> don't tell any of your employees that they can go <laughs> all of a sudden. Yeah. I got a job at Southwest. Well, all of, you know, that's it with all of our employees, all of our pilots are, I mean, they far exceed those. Actually, it's kind of funny. We we've had one pilot that left for the airlines. He was by far and away the least experienced, and went to Alaska Airlines. And um, I think it was about two months after he finished his IOE at Alaska. Yeah, yeah. Had a job offer from Delta, and by far and away was our least experienced pilot. Yeah, I'm. I, I mean. <laughs> Right now, it's never in my entire knowledge of the aviation industry. I don't think I have ever, ever heard of a time when it was a better time to become an airline pilot. It's crazy. I, it, it's, like, it's unbelievable. And this Southwest thing, that's, it, it somewhat blows my mind because I wanted nothing more than to fly Southwest Airlines. And I, like I said, I made some career decisions early on based on what it took to get on with Southwest, which was really trying to get that PIC turbine as quickly as possible. Um, You're a young man, those, Roger. You can do it. You can do these, it, Roger. These barriers are just completely gone. I mean, the fact we, we scratch our, it, we scratch our heads about how this guy got to Delta and that's great for him. I mean, he played his cards totally, totally right because that's what he wanted to do. And he's like, well, if I go to Alaska, you know, maybe I'll get on, I'll be able to, you know, get the, get a type rating and get on with a, a legacy or a major airline faster, and it, it worked to a charm, despite the fact he's got a third of the amount of time that I do. Yeah, yeah, and and that's really in the sweet spot because you know when you're when you're not one of the top three or top four major airlines in the country, and you're trying to staff, you're not going to go after the people in the top tier. Where the minute Delta or United or American or even Alaska calls, you're out of there. You're going to go because they have more opportunity. They have a bigger 
fleet. They have more airplanes. They have more more opportunity for quality of life and a future, right? So if you're at a low budget carrier, you want to hire traditionally people that are not at the bottom either, because you want to make sure they're going to be able to pass their ground school. They're going to make good decisions out on the flight line. They're not going to be a liability for your, for your company. So what you're shooting for are people that are kind of on the right above that lower tier, because they're not going to go, they don't have the qualifications to go to the, the big guys, right? But they need to build time and they want a jet job and they're chomping at the bit for it. So you're going to hire those that just have a little bit more than the minimum qualifications to the airlines that are the budget care airlines. Now, Southwest, although it is a low cost carrier, was never considered a budget airline. It was considered one of the big boys because they had a fantastic contract. They, the flying was a lot more like the domestic regional type flying where you, you know, you're shooting four or five legs a day and it's go, go, go. But they paid very handsomely. They had a great benefits package. They still do. And And they're stable. And they're growing. And you could do Hawaii now. You can fly seven threes to Hawaii on Southwest. So what do they have now that that the big boys have? They they have the same stuff with the exception of the international flying. So which for most people they don't care. They'd rather be home more often and not dealing with time zones and that kind of stuff. And you can make a fantastic career out of Southwest. It's always been kind of Southwest, UPS, FedEx were always like the kind of premier three, where if you got positions here, you were gold and you were set. And, you know, over the years, different airlines have come up and come down in terms of how much respect they've had. Delta's always been at the top uh, in terms of their contract and their profit sharing and all the stuff that everybody else wants, Delta's contract, right? Um, and we haven't even scratched the surface in in the last 48 hours with all the airlines that have tentative agreements that have been passed. We're talking United, we're talking Alaska, we're talking Delta. Um, even Southwest is getting really close. And so the, there's never been a better time to have a career established as a corporate pilot. As, as a corporate pilot. Uh, oh, is that not what you were going to no, say? No, no, no. As, oh. as a pilot, as a pilot in general, um, because the opportunities are there and we all start somewhere. And right? for some people, they make a career out of being a flight instructor. And there's nothing wrong with that because you got wings on, you're good. Some people want to get to the to the biggest and the best and do the international stuff and fly the the triple seven or the seven eighty seven and and who knows what's next, and that's fine for them too. Uh, but most of us are somewhere in the middle, and we either want a really good paying corporate job or we want a really good paying airline job, and you know we always are looking to get to the to the top of our personal pyramids. And man, the the opportunities now are just staggering. So, Roger, make sure you get your app in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm curious how it is around the world, because I know this pilot shortage isn't just in the United States. I know that, you know, the EU uh, has been having high demand for pilots. Um, their requirements are different. Uh, I know that um, Australia has a high demand for pilots um, and their requirements are different. So I'm curious around the world, if you're, if you're from somewhere else and you're listening to this podcast and you stumbled across us, um, thank you, number one, for listening. And number two, if you have any insight on how your industry is doing, please don't hesitate to, to email us. You can right there from our website. At the end of the show, we'll, we'll have more information about how you can do that. Now, I would like to talk about something that's just a little bit more hard to hear. 
Now, it's always difficult to hear about an aviation accident that leads to the death of a fellow aviator. Recently, many of us in the aviation community have heard of the PA-32 crash that occurred shortly after takeoff in Bethany, Oklahoma last month. Both pilots lost their lives in this event. One of them was a top pilots union lobbyist for the Allied Pilots Association that serves more than 15,000 pilots of American Airlines. An article from thehill.com highlights what has happened. Jonathan Benton, the Allied Pilots Association's longtime top advocate in the nation's capital, died in a plane crash on Monday, according to the Pilots Union. He was 53 years old. Benton was one of two people on board a Piper PA-32 aircraft that crashed shortly after takeoff from a regional airport in Bethany, Oklahoma. The other victim was identified by authorities as John Hazelton. If you've ever known or had the privilege of spending time with Jonathan, you were immediately struck by his sunny disposition, his weary smile, and genuine warmth. He would never miss an opportunity to talk about his family or ask about yours. We will miss him, his laughter, and his Oklahoma twang, and his steadfast commitment to bettering his fellow pilots' lives, the Allied Pilots Association wrote in a release. Benton was a chairman of government affairs at the Allied Pilots Association, which represents American Airlines pilots, where he pushed for stronger federal safety rules and the end to flag of convenience. He was named the Hill's top lobbyist list for three consecutive years from 2020 to 2022. Jonathan was a force to be reckoned with on Capitol Hill and beyond. He was equally comfortable in the halls of Congress debating the issues that affect our profession as he was sitting with a group of pilots swapping stories and sharing a few laughs. The Allied Pilots Association wrote, Benton joined American Airlines as a pilot in the year 2000. Prior to that, he was an Air Force pilot who spent more than 750 days deployed in Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating the accident, according to the Pilots Union. The union has recently announced in an internal email that I was able to acquire uh, that APA Board of Directors honors Captain Jonathan Benton. The APA Board of Directors reconvened its special meeting at union headquarters in Fort Worth at 9 a.m. Central. The board's final action in open session today was the unanimous approval of R2023-01, dedication of the Benton House. This resolution calls for APA's property at 425 New Jersey Avenue, Southeast in Washington, D.C., to be named in honor of Captain Jonathan Benton, who tragically lost his life on January 16th in an aircraft accident. As a longtime member of the APA Government Affairs Committee, including nearly five years as its chair, Captain Benton led the committee in advancing the safety and security interests of the pilot profession, including secondary flight deck barriers to increase cockpit and in-flight safety, the enhancement of maintenance standards throughout the industry, and the prevention of foreign carriers from using the flag of convenience business model, the resolution says. It also notes that Captain Benton's leadership in lobbying legislators during the 2020 COVID pandemic was crucial to securing the CARES and the PSP funds essential to preserving the financial integrity of the airline industry and stabilizing the careers of pilots of American Airlines and the industry as a whole. So here at Squawk Ident, 
we want to tip our hats to Captain Benton and what he did for all of us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we wanted to finish up the show today with some listener feedback from listener Tadeo. He wrote in, hi there. I have just come across your podcast a few weeks ago, and I am completely hooked on it. I am currently listening to all the archive of past episodes, and I am really enjoying it. I am currently flying the A350 for a large operator based in the Middle East. Listening to fellow aviators gives me a chance to understand what it's like to fly commercially in the U.S. Keep the episodes coming. They're awesome. Thanks again, Tad. Well, Tad, thank you so much for writing in. We love getting listener feedback. And it's be really interesting to hear a little bit about how your operation is going in the Middle East flying the A350. Now, to be honest with you, I really wanted to fly that airplane. The Legacy Airlines, when I got hired, had the A350s on order. We even had a simulator in the simulator bay at our training facility. And I was so excited to potentially get that aircraft someday to retire on that airplane. I'm absolutely in love with that airplane. Um, So if you have photos to share or video or any more audio feedback, maybe um, feel free to to send it to us. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks again for writing in. Kind of makes me wonder, is, is he listening to him from, from the most recent backwards or did he start at the very beginning? Because oh, today, if you're listening, if, if you did start at the beginning, they, the closer you get to the beginning, it was kind of a work in progress. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, that very first episode that I recorded was, <laughs> was so bad. I went back and listened to it a few months ago and I was like, oh my God. Anybody that listens to the current stuff, I'm pretty proud of our the work we do together and and the sound quality and everything. But the man, those first, so I actually I remastered the very first episode. I I added a little bit to it. Um, I tried to boost levels and I and I I did take my time. And so if you haven't listened to the first episode in a long time, first I'm sorry. <laughs> Secondly, I have I would remastered say thank it. Thank you. I, well, you haven't listened to the first episode in a while. Thank you. Well, now that I remastered it, I don't, I don't, I'm not so ashamed of it. Um, I did get some negative feedback. Someone, some young man, which I can assume is a young man from Australia, didn't quite like it. He, you know, he made some comments, uh, said I have a terrible podcast presence and all this stuff. I mean, he was pretty bad. And I thought, oh my God. And I text messaged all you guys and I was like, guys, we've We've made made it. it. We have a hater. We got haters. <laughs> so for all you haters out there, thank you for spending the time to talk trash. I don't mind. I really don't. <laughs> it just means I made it, right? Um, we, we also got some feedback from uh, someone who has been sending in uh, feedback for a while now. Uh, Alex Schaefer. Uh, he writes recently, Tony, good morning. I just wanted to check in with you. It's been a long time. Just wanted to say thank you guys for continuing to put out an awesome podcast. It keeps my passion for aviation going. Since last time we talked, my wife and I welcomed our first child. We are also expecting our second this September, and I have been instructing and flying as much as possible. Well, hey, first off, congratulations. That's amazing. I'm right at a thousand hours, he writes. I'm doing my best to keep the dream alive. 
I'm starting an SIC program with flight safety at the end of next month and will be in the Gulfstream G4, a little different than what I typically fly. A bit nervous for it, but excited at the same time. I'm hoping I can possibly make some network connections or get some contract flying. I've been burning the candle at both ends to get my hours, work full-time at my job, and instruct part-time as well, and spend time with my family, of course. It makes the time I get to spend with them precious. Fly safe, Alec. Well, Alec, congratulations, first off. Secondly, I can't tell you, I mean, I speak for all of us here at the Squawk Edit Podcast, how very proud we are of you. A Gulfstream G4, that's pretty cool, man. Um, just be safe out there. Keep building the, the hours. Um, you know, I, I, the passion is strong with this one, Roger. What do you think? Uh, hang in there, Alec. Uh, you know, it sounds like you're getting, you're getting close. Uh, it also sounds like you've got a full plate. Um, and if, if the passion is there, Hang in there. I think that you will find that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know a lot about your qualifications, but I think you will find that the longer that you hang around the flight safety um, SIC programs, that you will make some contacts and there will be some opportunities out there. Don't get discouraged if they don't come right away um, because they, you know, you are a little bit lower on time, but the longer you stick around, I know for a fact that there are opportunities that come from that but um again i can't stress enough just hang in there if if you want it you're almost there and kind of like we've touched on on the for almost kind of like this entire show there there are lots of opportunities once you make it um no matter which which path you want whether you want to go to the airlines at a regional or whether you decide to go the corporate route flying the uh the truck of the G, of the g4 uh, but best of luck to you. Congratulations on on the kids, and I'll throw in a good luck as well yeah. on that front. Get those thousand hours PIC, oh. or what is it? No, five hundred hours PIC now. <laughs> Start applying to Southwest. Yeah, it's buddy. not even PIC. It's, it's five hundred hours of presence of turbine. Oh yeah, five hundred hours a, of presence in a turbine. So there it is. Keep logging your turbine time, SIC, and and five hundred hours in. Make sure you start applying to Southwest because man, you can jumpstart your career, and that's not a bad place to start. You know, real uh, realistically, though, I mean, if you ended up with, you know, specifically talking about the G four, if you ended up with five hundred hours on the G four, you're probably not going to go to a, an airline at that point because you by that time you'd have so many contacts. Yeah, and you're working your way into a G five. Once if you can get a G five type rating these days, there are so many of those airplanes that are flying. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Well, personal preference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You can't really make a bad can't really make a bad choice as long as you're happy with you know, if you don't like what you're doing, make the swap. Yeah. I mean, if anyone has authority in making a comment like that, it's you. You were not happy, you had two babies on the way or two two babies at home and you're like I'm gone all the time and now they're forcing you to upgrade and go somewhere you didn't want to commute to. And a Craigslist job ad is where it all started. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I climbed a three, five. I don't actually even remember where that ad was. I think you told but me yeah, you saw was, you were on Craigslist. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know where it was, but it was just a job board. And it was kind of like you said, I, you know, it was one of those things that 
I was gone all the time. Uh, you know, FAR 117 had just kicked in. And so, you know, I went from having half the month off to all of a sudden having, you know, like minimum days off, whatever yeah. that was, plus the commute. Yeah. It's like you're not getting paid anything. It was a very different world back then, even though it was only eight years ago. But um, yeah. yeah. Well, if I can be home all the time and get paid almost the same amount. No question. No question. And, I did. I mean, dude, I do look back. I'm not going to lie. I do look back. Well, if I had stayed, I mean, it would be very different. I'd be, I mean, probably, probably, I mean, equivalent to you. Yeah, or, clearly, but you but would not have been. I've turned home. out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've now turned it, it's worked out all right for me. Yeah. Now you're, you're very, we're, we're all very lucky for those of us that, that can say we fly airplanes for a living. It doesn't matter what you fly, man. It doesn't, you know, it, when you're young and you're like, oh, I got to fly the biggest, the fastest, you know. Okay. But as soon as you get over I do there, fly the biggest and fastest. Shut up, Roger. <laughs> as you send me freaking videos from, what was it? Uh, 40, 45,000 feet climbing like a thousand feet a minute at, at, at eight, five or eight, eight. Yeah. You can start shooting down Chinese balloons, buddy. Good. Just strap on some missiles. That's it. We'll yeah. go check it out. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. Just put a pylon on one of your wings and get a broom handle, paint it black, and we'll see what happens. Well, uh, let's wrap up the show uh, by just saying thank you so much for our uh, our co-host for joining us today. Um, Rob sends his love. Uh, he said he couldn't make it today, but he wanted to say hello to all the listeners. So, hi everyone. On behalf of of Rob D. Um, thank you, Roger. Thank you, Alex, for joining me today. Uh, did you enjoy listening to our flight? Well, then please pay it forward. Share this podcast with your friends and family. Make sure you subscribe or follow to the Squawk Eden podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. We also love receiving listener feedback. Uh, so send it to us. You can do so in an email or even send us audio feedback via our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee.com. The easiest way is just record uh, either a video from your phone or uh, an audio, a voice recording from your phone and just throw it in an email. It's that simple. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can also find us under the Squawk Eden podcast. One final thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. See ya. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening.
Victor. It's an entirely different kind of flying. 